Activating communications encryption protocol. Open secure line 0405. Confirmed. This is Hill. Hill, I need you to record a podcast. Adult content and spoiler warning conditions. And bring me one of those Chick-fil-A sandwiches. Give me four hours. You have three. Over. And now, Binge Mode Marvel. They almost have what they want. Absolute control. They shot Nick Fury. And it won't end there. If you launch those helicarriers today, Hydra will be able to kill anyone that stands in their way. Unless we stop them. And I know I'm asking a lot. The price of freedom is high. It always has been. And it's a price I'm willing to pay. And if I'm the only one, then so be it. But I'm willing to bet I'm not. Did you write that down first? Or was it off the top of your head? Oh my lord. <laughs> that was that was cap orgasming after, after was seventy years. in Sam's bedroom. Yes. <laughs> of a post cryo sleep cryo sleep, yeah, if I've ever heard one. And welcome <laughs> to Binge Road Marvel, proudly a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Mallory Rubin, Editor-in-Chief of TheRinger.com. Oh, what a great website. <laughs> Joining me today, now that he's finished convincing me this isn't his first podcast since 1945, <laughs> or so he claims, it's your favorite super soldier, Jason Concepcion. Mal, I'm 95. I'm not dead. As live as Binge Mode Marvel, where we're exploring the Marvel Cinematic Universe's Infinity Saga and the comic book lore that inspired it as phase four of the MCU approaches. Please make the journey to the Lemurian star with us by following this mm. podcast on Spotify or subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us. Give us the five Lemurian star ratings, or we'll leave you at Camp Lehigh with just Arnim Zola. That's Tough it. Hang. Very, very tough <laughs> hang, that guy. If you're looking to catch up on our prior seasons or listen to them again, you can find our entire archive, Binge Mode, Game of Thrones, Binge Mode, Harry Potter, Binge Mode, Star Wars, Binge Mode Weekly for free, exclusively on mm. Spotify. Feel free to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore. Join our Facebook group, which is just for Binge Mode fans, which is an excellent place to discuss Steve Rogers' growing record collection and don't forget to head to the ringer.com slash shop to check out our binge mode merch. Fits perfectly under an Exo 7 Falcon harness. Sam Wilson fighting in jeans. I really <laughs> respect it. Tywin Lannister <laughs> voice. I respect that. Last time on Binge Mode Marvel, we channeled the ether to discuss Thor the Dark World <laughs> for two hours and 14 minutes. I love it. <laughs> and today. We're diving deep 
deep into one of our shared favorites. Captain America, the Winter Soldier. What a gem. As always here on Binge Mode. Spoiler warning, we will be going deep on details from this film, all three phases of the MCU to date, and that wide, wide, wide Marvel canon. Yeah! So grab your server blades. What else? It's time to head. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny that the plot of this movie comes down to server blades. You gotta install the server blades, you gotta <laughs> reboot. And you got to turn it off for 20 seconds and then turn it back on. Make sure the server blades are booted up. But don't download the new iOS until right, someone tells do you it's that. okay. Turn Wi-Fi off. <laughs> because it's time to head to the Triskelion right after this. Mal, Steve, yeah. before we get started, does anyone want to get out? No. Then let's no. offer up a brief refresher on what actually happens at Captain America the Winter Soldier by opening the Bifrost and accessing the knowledge of the Nine Realms. Dawn breaks over Washington, D.C. Sam Wilson, a veteran of the U.S. Air Force Pararescue Squad, and as we will learn, an orange juice enthusiast, is jogging around the Lincoln Memorial reflecting pool. Passing Sam on. Your left, again and again and again and again, is Steve Rogers, Captain America, ever heard of him? After the two talk, they bond. But Steve is interrupted by a text message, little smiley emoticon and all, from Nat. There's a mission. Pre-emoji. Pre you know, Nat keeps it simple. <laughs> Let's get right to the point. And here is the point in this case. Pirates have boarded S.H.I.E.L.D. ship, the Lemurian Star. Steve, Nat, and the S.H.I.E.L.D. team's job is to take out the pirates and rescue the hostages, including S.H.I.E.L.D. agent Jasper Sitwell. Jason, I wonder what he's doing there. It's a good question. Steve will ask that himself. Throwing up, he gets seasick, you know? Our heroes make short work of the pirates. And in the final fight, after uh, Steve takes out Batrock, the leader of the pirates, Steve stumbles onto Nat, salvaging data from the ship's hard drive. What is this? Steve's angry. Because apparently Nat's mission, kept secret from Cap, was to rescue S.H.I.E.L.D. intel from the Lemurian star. As an olive branch, Fury shows Cap one of his secret projects. Three new helicarriers, all heavily armed, powered by Repulsor Tech Engines. Project Insight. <laughs> Turns out that doesn't make Steve feel better. <laughs> Steve visits Peggy. What a touching scene. She is sick. She is in bed. And she is surrounded by pictures of her family. More on those pictures later today in the six books. Steve talks to her obliquely about S.H.I.E.L.D. He wonders if he's doing the right thing. If he's the good guy, Peggy, confused, calls out for Steve again. Devastating moment. In his office, Nick tries to open the data that Nat saved from the ship. Access denied. He tries to run decryption. Decryption failed. When he tries to see who has locked him out of this file, it's been locked on the orders of himself, Nicholas J. Fury. <laughs> Nick goes to see Alexander Pierce, Secretary of the World Security Council. Nick wants Pierce to call for a vote to delay Project Insight until we find out what's going on with this data. Pierce agrees. Later, 
On the streets of D.C., Hydra agents dressed like police officers ambush Nick. He seems poised to escape the trap until... Bum, bum, bum. Is that the Winter Soldier's music? I think it is. <laughs> is that my husband Bucky's music? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Buck. Loving the long hair. There he is, the Winter Soldier, appearing on our screen. Seriously injured. <laughs> Nick this manages is- to escape... In one of the only bad moments of the movie, by cutting a hole in the ground that Bucky does not peek into or climb into. He cuts (laughs) through not just the roof of his shield uh, SUV, but through approximately eight feet of pavement. (laughs) Amazing. Steve arrives home to find Nick Fury waiting for him. Your apartment is bugged and also shield is compromised, Nick tells him. Small, couple small details. The only people, by the way, who know this are you and me. And also I have, bang! As soon as he starts to say something, <laughs> else, he's shot. Hate when that happens. Nick gives Steve the data from the Lemurian star and tells him, don't trust anybody as his last breaths escape his lungs. Steve's neighbor, who, P.S., Fury didn't get to tell Cap about because she's an undercover S.H.I.E.L.D. agent, comes to look after Nick. Steve goes after the assassin. But the winter soldier escapes. At the hospital, Nick Fury passes away. Steve, give us those Peter, wait, wait, what's that? (laughs) (laughs) At the Triskelion, Pierce shows Cap some evidence from the Lemurian Star investigation. It suggests that Nick Fury hired the pirates as a cover-up for an operation to sell this intelligence. Bum, bum, bum! Use the neighbor's address right next to mom and everything. (laughs) Steve doesn't believe it. Pierce says, hey man, I don't buy it either. I'm on your side. Like, really? Seriously? Want to be pals? But then he pressures Cap again. Why was Nick at your apartment? What aren't you telling me? What did he tell you? Steve says, one thing only. Nick told me not to trust anyone. And listen, I already had trust issues. So this has been a setback for me. Quote, sorry, those were his last words. Cap leaves Pierce's office and is like, yeah, maybe I'll go down to the cafeteria and get some soup and, and some yeah. chips. He gets on the elevator. Well, Jay, various- you know the thing is, as we, as we <laughs> yeah. heard him tell Sam, they used to boil everything. So That's modern right. day cuisine is a delight to him, even at S.H.I.E.L.D. headquarters cafeteria food. Unbelievable. Have you guys tried tacos? I just found out about these things. Various S.H.I.E.L.D. employees get on the elevator with him, all seeming to be heading different places. No, it's an ambush. Steve fights them off and escapes the building. Jasper Sitwell tells the S.H.I.E.L.D. agents that they are to hunt down Captain America and the council, believing the Fury was behind the hijacking, votes to restart Project Insight. Elevator scene, unbelievable. Can't wait to talk about that more. Nat and Steve, well, they reconnect. That's right. In more ways than one, as we'll talk about later. (laughs) (laughs) The Winter Soldier, she tells him, is a legend in the intelligence community. He's credited with over two dozen hits over a 50-year period. He's 50! (laughs) It's like Baby Yoda! (laughs) Sometimes I think he's a baby, and then every now and then it's like decades under his belt. How many macaroons has he stolen and then vomited (laughs) back up? 
many, Nat says, don't believe that the Winter Soldier exists. But she knows he does because he shot her once. Steve and Nat. Jason, they go to the most romantic place on earth. I guess, let me tell you. First an Apple store and then New Jersey. Two of the wow. most romantic places on earth. I love New Jersey. DC <laughs> person is Apple like, store. New Jersey. Okay. That's <laughs> an amazing moment. In that Apple store, though they can't decrypt the file, they discover the location that they need to head to. Not only any military base in New Jersey, but the same one That's where right. Steve began his training for the super soldier program. Dun, dun, dun. Ever heard of it. Steve drives himself and Nat over to New Jersey. There they discover a secret entrance to a shield facility. And within this secret entrance is another secret room full of computer equipment that houses the consciousness of Arnim Zola still alive. God, you can't you can't get rid of him. You try to give him a steak. He asks what's in it. You tell him cow. And then 70 years later, he's bombing you from inside of a computer. You're in my brain. Google this. <laughs> Zola gleefully tells Roger and Natasha the truth. Hydra is alive and well and stronger than ever. And that's our plan, which has unfolded over 70 years, is to manufacture a crisis after crisis so that people give up their freedom willingly. With Project Insight ready to launch, Hydra is on the cusp of victory. And look at that. There's a guided missile racing toward their location. Yeah, Auf Wiedersehen. <laughs> oh, God. But of Great course, stuff. our heroes alive. Of course, they survive. Come on. Thank God for that drain bunker. Whatever that thing is. <laughs> Why looks, like, just... looks like a grate to subway access in New York. <laughs> I love it. Also, can we upgrade Zola into some new tech? <laughs> this is like on tape still. Listen, he probably put Zola on a phone. He's managed to do just fine. Thank you. He really has. <laughs> <sighs> well, after that little setback, Sam takes in Steve and Nat, and then Nat takes in Steve. <laughs> God, Sam, a true quick friend, lets them get a little stress fuck off in his spare bedroom. His bedroom, maybe his bathroom. I could everywhere. In the bedroom and bathroom. All <laughs> Sam, why don't you just take a powder for about an hour or two? <laughs> just walk around the block. Boy, yeah, you know they were ready for another another session there after they fueled up on that breakfast he made. Steve, get your little notebook out. Uh, WAP, W-A-P. <laughs> oh, boy. I think Steve knows all about that. <laughs> uh, Sam does more than give his pals a fuck shack. He joins their cause and he brings a powerful toolkit. The last Pararescue Exo 7 Falcon wingsuit, which they just need to steal from Fort Meade. And honestly, it's no big deal for them. Off screen. Let's do it off screen. For Nat. That's it. (laughs) Off screen. No need to show it. 
Oh, God. Jasper Sitwell is just leaving a lunch meeting with fellow Hydra sleeper agent, Senator Stern. What a disgusting Where? piece of shit this guy is. What? Amazing. What are you? Gotta press the flesh with the constituent, Jason. Hail Hydra. <laughs> when our heroes snatch him right off the street, Sitwell reveals that Zola's algorithm is a smart targeting program designed to go after threats to Hydra. Once Project Insight launches, it will carry out strikes on millions of individual targets. That's such a great Sam is Falcon sequence. The coolness of the I hear the crab cakes are great here over here, sitting there so suave. And then boom, when the wingsuit first flies up on the side of the building, carrying Sitwell, who should have just fallen to his death. I mean, honestly, I don't know that it ended any better for him than that. Bucky hauling him out of a car into an oncoming Mack truck. Our heroes, after the roofside exchange with Sitwell, are transporting him across town when uh, the Winter Soldier and Hydra attack. Sitwell is immediately killed. No Petey Wales for Sitwell. He doesn't deserve them. Malachus got them, but Sitwell won't. One of the top underrated, hilarious moments of this movie is the death of Jasper Sitwell. That's a really, really rough one. He does not feel so good. In the ensuing fight, Cap battles the Winter Soldier directly, and in the process, he discovers the horrible truth. The Winter Soldier is his old, handsome pal, Bucky Barnes. In the end, Cap, Sam and Nat, are captured by the Hydra Shield agents. Fucking Rumlow. Uh, not here. What is, what, what, is, <laughs> what is Rumlow's problem all the time? It's like, yeah, you got a job to do, but why are you such an asshole, man? I, Frank Grillo, as always, pulls it off. Yeah, unbelievable. <laughs> Big fan. <laughs> Shouts to all of my guiding light heart Jesso heads out there. One of my <laughs> first, one of my first and fiercest crushes, Frank Grillo as heart on guiding light. <laughs> Uh, anyway, but an undercover Maria Hill rescues them, takes them to the still alive Nick Fury. Shocking turn. <laughs> Wounded, yes, but still with us in one of his secret shield safe houses. One of his many. Of course, Nick Fury is still alive. Foxtrot, not down. Fury has a plan. Break into the Project Insight helicarriers and install our custom targeting, quote, blades. If done correctly, this will cause the carriers to target each other and take itself down. Project Insight will destroy itself. Cap has his own agenda, however. He doesn't want to just take down the carriers. He wants to take down S.H.I.E.L.D. In the end, Hydra is defeated. The Insight carriers, along with the Triskelion, are in ruins. Pierce, secret Hydra, Hydra leader, is dead. And does not feel <laughs> great or even good. Fury is back to pretending he's dead again. Cap and Sam head off to find Bucky. Natasha stays in the public eye to face the music in front of Congress, issuing a not-so-veiled threat. I love it, though. It's a, a yeah. great setup for the films to come. Speaking of which, in the mid-credits scene, another Hydra cell. Jason, listen. They're always telling us you cut off one head, yada, yada, yada. 
They are being honest about it, okay? And here is this other cell led by Baron Wolfgang von Strucker. He has the scepter. He has the mind stone. And with it, he has powered up a pair of siblings, Scarlet Witch and your boy, Quicksilver. What if you cut Uh, off all the heads at once instead of missing so many of the heads? I mean, that's my issue. Maybe light it all on fire. Instead, just try something other than decapitation for once. Let's give another method a go. <laughs> Jason? Yes? I thought you were more than just a shield. Let's see. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's power up the arc reactor and the story. The defining theme of this episode is the truth unmasked. This is the third film in MCU's Phase 2, second film in Cap's standalone saga, released on April 4th, 2014. The creative team, produced by Kevin Feige, of course, written by Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely, describes for all three Cap films, plus Infinity War and Endgame, and two-thirds of the writing team for (laughs) Thor The Dark World and The Writers of Rage of Carter. This is also the introduction of... The Russo brothers to the MCU, certainly one of the most uh, consequential personnel moves behind the scenes. The Russo brothers cut their teeth mainly in TV, directing uh, many, many episodes of Arrested Development, putting their mark on community, uh, and then going from there to making The Winter Soldier, an incredible leap and level up. And boy, did they make this series, this franchise, this universe, uh, their own and take it in a direction that is uh, really theirs. Yeah, it's remarkable. In fact, while that community run may initially seem incongruous with being tapped to direct Winter Soldier, how do you go from point A to point B in that respect, it is actually directly responsible for their selection, which is just so cool. According to a February 2014 piece by Brooks Barnes in the New York Times, quote, the real coup is that they didn't even apply for the job. The Disney-owned Marvel sought them out after an executive there caught their genre-spoofing season two finale of Community. That finale, of course, is the absolutely iconic two-part paintball extravaganza, which itself was a genre reference point spoofing Star Wars spaghetti westerns. The New York Times quote continues. The phone rang one day, Joe said. After about four meetings over two months and a lot of intense work to show them our vision, storyboards, a fake trailer, we somehow had the job. Unbelievable. And in an April 2014 interview with the Washington Post's Emily Yar, Joe Russo credited Kevin Feige. Of course for making that kind of creative leap, for having the, 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 the chutzpah to make a decision like that, to have that vision. Quote, I remember when we sat down for our first meeting with Kevin, he said, you guys should be directing action movies. It really takes somebody like him to think that far outside the box. Someone with his credibility and integrity and power to be able to say, I'm going to take two guys who are known for comedy and I'm going to give them a big action film. And what an action film it was. Uh, it was a, a marriage 
made in heaven and consummated in Sam's spare room. <laughs> the Russo brothers uh, would stay on to helm the third film, Captain America Civil War, which is uh, an Avengers film in all but name. And even more crucially to direct the two-parter Avengers Infinity War and Avengers Endgame. Just really difficult to overstate their impact on the MCU. And when the Avengers baton was ready to be passed a f- bit further down the road, when Whedon exited, there was some trepidation given how integral Whedon had been to the tone and texture of the MCU at that point. And clearly based on the work the Russo brothers have done, that concern was unfounded. I think that people tend to think, oh, it's it's interesting that the comedy guys don't have the funniest movies, but I don't think that's really fair. You know, obviously... It's not a laugh riot levity fair like Guardians or Ant-Man, Ragnarok, some of these movies that are designed specifically with an intent of, of humor and joy and just kind of opening your eyes and wonder at what is unfolding around you are. But they're very clever movies. And I think particularly Infinity War and Endgame, despite the absolute devastation of the stakes and what is unfolding really have a lot of zingers and a lot of good lines. But even this, this movie, there are, there are so many clever moments. A lot of them between Steve and Nat, the innuendo, the winks, the, the way that the idea of Steve as a man at a time is not only this deeply resonant thematic exploration, but also fodder for a a lot of ribbing. I, I think there, there's more comedy here than people often remember though. It is of course, not a comedy. It is a genre movie, Jason, an action movie and a political thriller. The narrative, the discussion as this movie was getting set to release was this is uh, like a spy thriller of in the same kind of vein as the Parallax View and All the President's Men and uh, Three Days of the Condor, which also starred Robert Redford, these kind of paranoid films of the 70s. And This comes on the heels of the first Avenger, which, of course, was like a period piece in a war drama. And then you have The Winter Soldier, which is more of a political thriller set in the modern day. As Feige told Variety's Jerry Rice in February 2013, as production was underway on the project, the genre variants felt key not only for Caps films, but the MCU at large. If it is a fad, he said, meaning superhero movies in general. It's one that lasts 30 to 40 years as the Western did because each one is so different. There's an opportunity to graft almost subgenres onto them. Our first Captain America film was a World War II picture. The next is a political thriller. They all have their own textures and patinas, and that's what's exciting about it. In that 2014 interview with the Washington Post, Joe Russo credited the genre choice and their childhood affection for the comics with their being so drawn to the project. Quote, they wanted to make movies inspired by 70s thrillers. We grew up on 70s thrillers. Really how we access cinema was through 70s thrillers with our father watching them. French Connection, All the President's Men, Marathon Men. We were obsessed with those movies. I think the Western comp is a good one. I think why Westerns were were such a rich text is they allowed a natural framing for just an incredible cross-section of potential characters. You know, you had cowboys, you had Native Americans, you had, you know, rich railroad barons, you had the railroad workers, you had uh, the Chinese immigrants who were working on the railroads, on and on and on. You had this wide cast of characters, and I think that's kind of, that's what superhero movies give us as well, an incredibly vast array of different kinds of characters, and they all have a reason to be together. 
I, I love talking about this. I think that the development process for this film is one of the more fascinating ones in the MCU because of the logic at play and what you're describing. And in those quotes you just read, that, that Feige comment about recognizing at this moment of really, as we've, as we've talked about in, in recent pods, simultaneously the recognition that the MCU was maybe this unstoppable force, you know, on the, on the tail end of the Iron Man trilogy, Avengers, but also Dark World, how into it yeah. were people. And yeah. obviously the next films are being developed before the, the picture of how the prior one is, is received is totally clear, but that's what makes it so impressive, actually, the ability to anticipate that need to differentiate and to provide these distinct tones. And, you know, we talked about this in our first, in our Captain America, the first adventure podcast, but it's one of the many reasons that I think the Captain America standalone films are our, our favorite of the single character franchises because each one, they feel totally of a piece, not only with each other, but also with the Avengers movies. I think probably most seamlessly integrated with the Avengers films, but each one feels totally unique and distinct in terms of that genre, that tone, that identity. And this choice in particular, that political thriller, that spy thriller, I I don't, as lauded as this movie is, and we'll talk about that more in a minute, I, I don't even know that we give it enough credit because they had to make this the movie where we understood, of course, we get this in The Avengers, but this is the first standalone Steve film after he's woken up. The man out of time element is absolutely fundamental to continuing his story, showing how much he is struggling to grasp and to accept what it means to be alive today, especially with these anchors to his past, these ghosts from his past surfacing around him, to use 70s thrillers, decidedly not of our time, as the inspiration for how to make a movie about what modern day life is like and integrate so seamlessly those older touchstones with that hyper, hyper 2000s USA global politics, fear, paranoia, terror, warping terror into control is brilliant. And it's in some ways the least, we're going to talk about this a lot as we get to, as we go through the plot in the movie, the least comic booky of many of, of many of the films. It could be a Mission Impossible movie. It could be a Jason Bourne movie. That's a great point. It's very grounded. In the Captain America suit with his shield. And it just all fits so perfectly together. Yeah, and it's a movie... On top of all of that, this movie takes huge swings on top yep. of the really interesting uh, genre combination. I mean, this is... <laughs> they basically were like, yeah, S.H.I.E.L.D., the agency that was great for all the yes. movies up to this very moment is actually the paramount example of evil within this world. But it again, is, that speaks it, to the confidence, right? And what was to come to be able to remove shield in that capacity, at least from the board. They just knew how many other pieces they had. Uh, it's incredible. Huge shot and really, really an amazing thing. Is your favorite line in the entire movie when Fury says of the inside helicarriers, once we get them in the air, they never need to come down? How, how'd that go? Here. <laughs> You'd, you'd, you'd think that it's kind of like the God of Lies thing. You'd think that Nick has seen it enough by now. All they do, Nick, come on. I know it's classified and you can't even admit to me how many helicarriers S.H.I.E.L.D. has, but just ballpark how many have crashed in your career. 20? 
like unbelievable. I mean, these are just, you know, you launch them and then they just, they, they come right down. As, as, as Pierce says, what a waste. Again, in the comics, we have a helicarrier that becomes an entire colony of vampires. <laughs> the crew of thousands of this helicarrier all become vampires and then the helicarrier has to be crashed. It's not what you want. <laughs> what is going on with these things? Let's talk about the cast. Our MCU faves, many of them return. Chris Evans, of course, is Captain America. Scarlett Johansson is Natasha Romanoff. Sam L. Jackson is Nicholas Fury. Sebastian Stan. Yeah. Bucky the Winter Soldier. Haley Atwell as Peggy. Kobe Smulders as Maria Hill. Notable here. Uh, Sebastian Stan is clearly visible in the trailer, and he was part of the Comic-Con panel that teased the film. His identity is a mystery in the movie. But of course, it was not a secret for viewers heading into the film. And certainly, if you read the comics, you understood where this was going for quite a while. Some new faces. Anthony Mackie joins the franchise as Sam Wilson, a.k.a. The Falcon. Frankie Love Grills. Him. Frank Grills. Frankie ah, Gorilla. Another great Brock one. Rumlow, a.k.a. Crossbones, a.k.a. Hart Jessup, <laughs> a.k.a. Shredded Cheese. Emily Van Camp, Canada's own. As Agent 13, a.k.a. Sharon Carter, a.k.a. Mm. It's Complicated. <laughs> Robert Redford, ever heard of him, folks, as Alexander Pierce, which is, uh, it's just a great pull and a great casting choice because, because of course, he played yes. parts in so many of the 70s Right. touchstones that inspired the tone of this film, Three Days of the Condor, which is a fantastic movie about a CIA agent who goes on the run and strikes up a romance on the quick with Faye Dunaway. And pe whenever people see this movie, they're like, ah, I don't buy it. Would, would these two people just who don't know anything <laughs> about each other just like get together? Yes, because one is Robert Redford and the other is Faye Dunaway. They're <laughs> exactly. both gorgeous. Like, what are you talking about? Of course they get together. Oh, God. Even without Faye Dunaway, this movie, The Winter Soldier, crushed on Rotten Tomatoes and at the box office. 90%! 90% among critics, 92% among audience members. People love the movie. Very few people don't love the movie. Isaac Lee is one of them. Shame on him. Well, he says that it's he doesn't dislike it. He just merely says that it's overrated. He doesn't get it. Yeah, it doesn't get what all the fuss is about. Okay. People who spent $259.8 <laughs> million domestically, $454.7 million internationally, and $714.4 million globally. They all seem to like it. Yeah. What a movie. Do you like the movie, Jason? Let's talk about it for a minute. Yeah, I love it. I mean, it really brought, first of all, it brought a new level of action to the MCU in the way that, you know, it seems really inspired by Asian action films, The Raid, et cetera, with these frenetic cuts. Um, I think it uses, you know, we've talked about the framing and the genre stuff. There's so many uh, moments in this in which Cap's power levels, Nat's abilities are so expertly and entertainingly explained to you through visual action. You know, there's the movie, there's the scene where, uh, where Bucky after he shoots Nick and Steve goes after him and he's smashing through the doors of like the, the, this office building that he leaps to from his window. 
And it's all of this exists to tell you how strong Cap is, what he's capable of doing. And it it it's it does that in a really visceral way. Of course, the fight between Winter Soldier and Cap on the street is like incredible. And honestly, it, this probably has two of the best five action scenes in the entire MCU in it. The elevator scene, which is just so good. It's Crackling. so good. Crackling and and the highway fight, like the fight that in, on the mm-hmm. in the streets of DC slash Cleveland, that is incredible. <laughs> Just a really fun movie, great performances. I think Chris Evans is like the again the perfect mix of good, but also conflicted. I think his trying to figure out where he fits in this modern world. Do his values hold up? Do the values that that drove him to join the super soldier program, to join the army, to try and enlist time and time again. Do those values hold true in the same way in this modern era? I think that that struggle is conveyed really wonderfully by him. I I really like this movie. Maybe my favorite in the entire MCU. What about you? I agree with everything you said. It is, again, we'll, we'll wait until the end of the run to do our final rankings, I think, but it's, certainly in my top three might be my favorite MCU movie. It might be my favorite. It might be. I think it's phenomenal. I never get tired of revisiting it. And it's for, for all the reasons that you just outlined. It's cruising at the speed of light in every lane that it attempts to travel in. And all of that intertwines so harmoniously. The tone of the movie the choice to make a political thriller, to make a hyper-contemporary story that allowed us as viewers to really think about the meta-commentary about our lives, the choices we make, the compromises and sacrifices that people make every day in the world right now, while also never losing sight of that really elemental aspect of Steve's journey and his character. This is not the world that he's from. This is not the world that he knew. This is not the world that led him to decide to fight in the first place. But it's like Erskine said, right? It's that compassion inside of him. It's that heart. And that's fixed. That doesn't change no matter what happens around him. And I just, I love watching him grapple with that, with how his desire to, as you said, do right is... at odds with not only his new enemies, but often, really as often, with the people who he thinks are his allies. And the set pieces that you mentioned, you know, the the, the Lemurian star extraction, the the Fury car chase, the, uh, the, the, the elevator fight, the motorcycle escape, just remarkable, the highway confrontation with Bucky, the helicarrier climax, all of them... You know, I think often in an action movie, when you get to those massive set pieces, you think we're taking a break in a, in a way. Like, it's fun. It's visceral. But in, in this movie, one of the great achievements, I think, of, of Winter Soldier is that the set pieces actually serve to heighten the themes and, and actually advance the plot, not just the mechanics of the plot, but the stakes of the plot. And I think the other thing is... It's not just a profound movie. It's not just a fun movie, but it's a sexy movie. Like the MCU, as we've talked about, is not always expert at 
tapping into the chemistry. Some of the movies are actively prude and some of the other ones that try to foster those emotional relationships or sexual connections fall a little bit flat. And this one is effortless. It is bursting through our screens just as their muscles are all bursting through their costumes. I mean, you can't contain the, the chemistry. It's crackling. It's absolutely crackling. I mean, the, the, you know, the subtext of many of the cap nat scenes are, if not all are, these two are attracted to each other, period. It's very much the case. And that, which brings us to, uh, which brings me to, uh, Something else that's really great about this movie, all the characters, certainly all the main characters, have great moments within the context of the film. Fury, uh, the Nick Fury car chase. Nick Fury gets to show out in a set piece action scene for like five minutes in the 1%. film. That's, and it's now. And it's all him. And he gets to show the full Nick Fury arsenal. He gets to have the cool gun with the uh, fun shield car. It doesn't fly, but that's because it's too damaged. He gets to uh, show off what a badass he is by telling Maria Hill she needs to be here with some kind of like spy jargon about like how serious it is. He he gets to escape at the last moment, all the cool stuff. Um, and then there's, you know, Nat has her own moments. We get to watch Sam in the Exo Falcon suit showing all he can do. Just really cool moments, not just action scenes, but dialogue scenes, emotional scenes, um, are parceled out really smartly to all the members of the main cast. And it's just, it's a wonderful blend. Such a good point. When you're thinking about the action movies that you have the most fun watching and that you, you, you enjoy the most, that are just the most purely fun to sit through. What do you, what do you find yourself thinking about a lot? Of course, the flash, the, the, sounds, the physicality of it, but the pace, the pace most of all. And it's not just about the speed at which things happen, but it's about understanding the alchemy at play, the specific chemistry of the movie. And the chemistry is not just about the chemistry that unfolds between the characters, though, of course, that's part of it. It's about understanding, as you're saying, how every part of the movie informs not only the other parts of this movie, but the movies that are still to come. And I think this is true across the, the Russo brother movies in the MCU. Yeah. You know, this is like, we will talk about this a lot when we get to Infinity War and Endgame, but not everybody is as, as high on Endgame as maybe their fellow MCU fan. But sure. you will never, ever, ever be able to convince me that specifically finding the balance and the pairings of the characters that worked in those movies was anything short of genius, like an actual masterstroke. And this is this movie, Winter Soldier, is where I think the seeds of that really, really like start to root into the soil so that they can blossom down the road. Think of something even like, you know, we talked about the mid credits stinger to tease Ultron and Scarlet Witch and and Quicksilver. But what about the post credits stinger? Buck, you know, going to look at his own exhibit this is uh, almost like uh, that singer almost makes this part one of a a, a, then a sequel, not only like obviously Civil War is literally a sequel, but it's, it's setting up so seamlessly that exact plot point sprawling out and unfurling in Civil War. Let's talk about the actual movie for a few minutes here. Let's start with 
Steve and Fury and S.H.I.E.L.D. and HYDRA before we get into some of the more interpersonal dynamics between Steve and his pals. Yeah, so much of this film centers on Cap trying to find his place in this new world. And that includes among the MCU heroes in the wake of the Battle of New York and the events that took place there, the forming of the Avengers. Feige was was really aware of how this would shape Steve's journey in the movie. In, in a March 2014 MTV News set visit report from Josh Wiegler, Feige says... We always wanted, as you've seen in Iron Man 3 now, for Tony to go back to his world in Malibu and Stark Industries, for Thor to go back to Asgard. We weren't going to send Cap back in time. He had nowhere else to go, and that's part of his story. That's part of how we meet him at the beginning of the movie, and it just made sense that he was the one that stayed with what remains of the Avengers at the end of the film. But of course, Steve isn't really digging that S.H.I.E.L.D. life, and I think that's that's an important contrast, right? Tony is an independent figure, independently wealthy. He doesn't need, he does a lot of government work, of course, including supplying them with <laughs> uh, tons of weaponry over the years. But, you know, he's got, he's got fuck you money. He's got fuck you independence. He doesn't need to listen to anybody. Bruce Banner has spent years on his own living by his wits, right? Thor is literally from a different realm, from a different world. Steve. And, and Natasha, Clint, they've worked for the government, of course, but they uh, are completely embedded in this modern milieu. They understand uh, they're, they're people who have lived in the world on their own for a variety of years. Steve, in, in a weird way, is so dependent on the structures around him that he doesn't even fully understand. He's embedded within S.H.I.E.L.D. because what else is he going to do, right? But he's also dependent on it in a way that that is concerning to him. And of course, what does Steve say to Nat and Brock aboard the Lemurian Star? I'm getting a little tired of being Fury's janitor. Right. He doesn't like what his role is, but of course he has not a lot of say in what that role is. He doesn't even have a lot of understanding about what it is. He's used to being the soldier for so long. That was one of the defining truths of his life that he craved Mm -hmm. being a soldier, being a part of an army, a conversation he has with Fury that we'll talk about in a minute. That, That means something to him. That's precious to him. That band of brothers being a part of that collective. You know, we talked about that in our first Avengers pod. He's literally Captain America. He's a super soldier, right? He's the great success of Project Rebirth. He can do it on his own, but he doesn't want to. He wants to be doing it with other people by his side. And so it is, of course, I just love that Feige quote so much because I think it gets back to something we talked about in our very first podcast, Iron Man 1. The people who made these movies understood the heart of the character. And the heart of Steve Rogers is searching for that belonging and that sense of purpose. And the moments when he realizes that he doesn't have that anymore are honestly devastating because it's been the defining through line of his life. And so you, I, I really am looking forward to when we get to Civil War, talking about the kind of surprising, almost inversion of the sides that Steve and Tony lead. And how your inclination initially might be to think it would be the other way around, but that that's really the genius of it, the brilliance of it, is that Steve had to be the one to rebel against the system because that recognizes evolution and change for him. Of course, Steve, when he's 
in action, when he's being a soldier, that's where he's the most comfortable. The Lemurian star scene is just an unbelievable action sequence from the parachuteless dive, which amazes the <laughs> S.H.I.E.L.D. team. <laughs> it's yeah. like, great. <laughs> to the S.H.I.E.L.D. whirls, the head kicks, the grenade escape. Uh, Cap has his new outfit, his new kind of counterintelligence spy outfit, and a new You love edge. this suit. You love this Cap outfit. I do like this. I do like this, the modern Cap outfit. I like it a lot. It is a wonderful fast-paced scene, as, as we noted above, effortlessly invigorating. Uh, Cap is also just not above throwing a knife into a guy's <laughs> hand and pinning them to a wall, then kicking him in the head as he's the head screaming kick is- like... <laughs> Cap is pretty vicious. <laughs> Cap is fucking savage, and it establishes the stakes right away. Cap's not going to face gods or aliens in this film. He's going to face people and organizations, people with concealed intentions and organizations with concealed intentions. In a 2014 interview with Vulture's Kyle Buchanan, the screenwriters discussed how important this idea was to frame the story not around the surreal, the fantastic, but the recognizable. Yes. Quote, With this one, we really wanted to be very grounded, Marcus said. As grounded as you can be with a flying aircraft carrier and talking computers and a guy with wings, we wanted it to be Cap (laughs) versus the world we all live in today. He had just fought aliens. And it didn't seem like the time to double down and have him up against dinosaurs and magicians. He's a man named after our country. And eventually, you've got to check in on the state of the country. That's so smart, man. They they really just had a complete and total feel for this. Really, really smart. That country, of course, is full of people. Steve Rogers is increasingly unsure he knows or can trust. Steve, to Nat, our mission is to rescue hostages. Nat to Steve, no, that's your mission. And you've done it beautifully. <laughs> On the, in the wake of this, Steve makes his uh, displeasure known clear to Nick Fury. You just can't stop yourself from lying, can you, he says. To which Nick replies, I didn't lie. Agent Romanoff had a different mission than yours. Which you didn't feel obligated to share? I'm not obliged to do anything. Those hostages could have died, Nick. I sent the greatest soldier in history to make sure that didn't happen. And then here's the, this is the crux of it, this next line from Steve. Soldiers trust each other. That's what makes it an army. Remember what Steve said to Nick Fury in The Avengers, in the <laughs> workout scene that we're so fond of. When I went under, the world was at war. I wake up, they say we won. They didn't say what we lost. This idea, this conflict, externally and internally, is a defining struggle for Steve Rogers, not just coming to terms with what surrounds him in the modern world, but coping with what no longer does, including that sense of shared purpose and understanding. And what Fury informs him about Project Insight absolutely alarms Steve. We're going to neutralize a lot of threats before they even happen, Fury tells Cap. as He is proudly displaying the Project Insight helicarriers. Thought the punishment usually came after the crime. Steve says, we can't afford to wait that long. This is uh, completely different from the way Steve is used to meeting threats, which is head on with the star on his chest and a shield 
as his weapon. His weapon is defensive, not offensive. He doesn't go on the offense before the enemy has even fired a shot or has even done anything. It's completely antithetical to Steve's worldview, and he's struggling with it. Fury is, of course, going to be on the run, aligned with Steve against S.H.I.E.L.D. shortly, but we can't lose sight of the fact that he starts by making the exact same mistake he made in The Avengers, responding to a threat by escalating the arms race. I love that because it's like completely different plot points, enemies, circumstances, but this idea of Steve being caught in a loop inside of S.H.I.E.L.D. where he keeps wanting to buy in and they keep not letting him, showing that he shouldn't. That they're not worthy of that trust. Phase phase two and the and the insight project insight are not not that different. Yeah. It took some convincing for Tony to get Cap to see the light, to recognize the horror of phase two and of Shield's deception in the Avengers. But here he it's instant for him, that disenchantment. By holding a gun to everyone on Earth and calling it protection, as you noted, anathema to him. And in speaking to Washington Post, Emily R. in 2014, Joe Russo highlighted that uber contemporary bent of the film and why it mattered, why it was so important to make the threat look and feel like this. Quote, can we protect ourselves humanely? You have an interesting character because Cap is a representative of the greatest generation. The war, the conflict they were involved in was very black and white. Now he's in a very subversive, cynical world, and he's a great mirror for us. So we felt we could use him to highlight the complexity of our political landscape. Their ensuing exchange taps into a divide that has defined life in America and the West after 9-11. Quote, you know, I read those SSR files, Fury tells Cap. Greatest generation, you guys did some nasty stuff. Yeah, we compromised. Sometimes in ways that made us not sleep so well, but we did it so that people could be free. This isn't freedom. This is fear. S.H.I.E.L.D. takes the world as it is, Fury replies, not as we'd like it to be. It's not ultimately the world that Fury wants either, as he realizes when his efforts to follow through on the S.H.I.E.L.D. on his S.H.I.E.L.D. and Project Insight suspicions get him riddled with Hydra bullets on the streets of the nation's capital. They couldn't touch the, the air conditioning in the SUV, though. That was still cranking. Thank God that worked, because it's hot. Hot down there in D.C. couple notes on this otherwise awesome action sequence. Number one, not enough traffic on the streets of D.C. Two, why doesn't Bucky follow the clearly banged up Nick Fury down into the hole? I guess just because there's a, a movie they have to make, but that's a tough one. <laughs> We're supposed to yeah. think that the Winter Soldier is this utterly fearsome assassin, uh, unstoppable, and he he doesn't even just he's pop like, right well, down he's there gone. into the hatch. You know, throw a grenade down there and then go and then run down there. Tough guy. What are we scared? <laughs> are we scared of the dark now? <laughs> oh, Bucky. Fury through that hole that Bucky did not pursue him into makes his way to Steve's apartment where. He reminds us that whether characters are experiencing a real breakthrough or just playing out a farce, they interact in this movie in the language of truth and lies. A lot of things you don't know about me, Fury tells Steve, who says, I know, Nick, that's the problem. And that is after the threshold exchange with his neighbor, <laughs> Steve thinks is a nurse named Kate who works on an infectious disease ward. She's never working, though. Never, never seems to be at work. <laughs> Agent 13 and Peggy's great niece, niece in the comics, Sharon, as we will learn later on. Steve told Peggy 
earlier in the film in their scene together, knowing that you helped found S.H.I.E.L.D. is half the reason I stay. But he doesn't know that her own blood is part of the organization. Love that little moment when Kate slash Sharon is on the phone. My aunt, she's kind of an insomniac. Yeah. Tough foundation here for a relationship, even with the offer of free laundry. We're going to talk a lot later about Steve and Nat and Steve's love life. But credit to Cap here. He does try. Not the sexiest thing. Hey, come wash your dirty scrubs in my apartment. But he's going for it. Oh, yeah. What's it cost when he says that the laundry is cheaper than the one in the basement? Cup of coffee? Cap. (laughs) Cap. (laughs) Oh, God. So much for Steve to uh, process here. Breaking down walls with Fury comes with realizing how much Fury has been hiding from him, either by not telling him or directly lying to him. Ears everywhere. Fury types on his phone as he tells gestures for Cap to be careful what he says. As he bleeds out on Steve's floor, he says, don't trust anyone. While acting on his own instincts, his faith in Steve as the person that he hid everything from, therefore the only person that he can, in this moment, trust. That should tell you something, Nick. Uh, Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Great note. Steve learns who Sharon really is, the S.H.I.E.L.D. part, not the Carter part, as he's learning that she has also been lying to him, though that's her job, to be fair. Out of a desire to protect him, sure, but you know, a a lie all the same. It's an utterly destabilizing, unmooring sequence, the crumbling bearings exacerbated by the context. Steve's in his house. He's in his home. The place he should feel secure. The place that is riddled with bugs. They can watch him jacking off in the shower. (laughs) Rough. But of course, there's absolutely no safer or more secure place than S.H.I.E.L.D., Mm. Except maybe Hogwarts, though, to be (laughs) fair, it took Hogwarts, you know, six to seven movies before the building would be destroyed. It it would not take it would not take that many with S.H.I.E.L.D. And it's a mark of how off things feel that Pierce with Pierce that Steve sides with Nick Fury, the person he spent the entire movie and much of the prior Avengers movie complaining and blaming for the various lies that he's told directly to his face. If you really knew Nick Fury, he tells Pierce, you'd know that's not true. Man, I want a friend like Cap who's just going to cape, literally cape, for Nick Fury, who again has flat out been lying to his face. Steve Rogers, loyal guy. Loyal guy. In the world of Winter Soldier, truth and lies aren't part of a binary they're a spectrum of manipulation and duplicity on that note here's a little bit of wisdom from alexander pierce quote to build a really better world sometimes means having to tear the old one down and that makes enemies those people that call you dirty because you got the guts to stick your hands in the mud and try to build something better pierce like that's how you know he's the, the bad guy <laughs> baddie that he is <laughs> speaks in this quintessential fashion like a would-be savior who can't help but reveal his intent and his malice. It's right there embedded in the nature of his speech. Steve is not just strong, though, or brave or fast. He's instinctual. 
And he knows not to tell Pierce about the thumb drive. And he knows from the grip of a gun handle and the beads of sweat on the side of someone's face, body language, that all of the soldiers, the S.H.I.E.L.D. agents pouring into that headquarters elevator are there to attack him. Irrefutably one of the most iconic moments in the MCU. Amazing. Before we get started, does anyone want to get out? These poor fuckers really thought they had a chance here. And the scene just builds spectacularly that tension mounting as clarity mounts for Steve as the wool slides inch by inch down his eyes. Rumlow, I just want you to know, Cap, this isn't personal. Cap, it kind of feels personal. I mean, Rumlow was was like uh, cattle prodding Steve for like a full... Yes. Minute. Just like. <laughs> when he and Nat do that with each other, they have a safe word. So it's different. Hello. Those, I mean, how many of those dudes are like paralyzed and dead? Like he hits the one, uh, like the action Bronson looking guy in the neck. And I'm sorry, but that guy's windpipe is like a flat piece of macaroni. Like it's gone. You just got hit in the throat by a super soldier. You're finished. A decent number of the strike team members make it to the Apple store and the mall. <laughs> More than you would think. I mean, Rolo gets thrown into the ceiling. Anyway. He'll survive worse. He really <laughs> this will. very movie. Oh, God. But it's, Jay, it's actually important, right, that Cap does think it feels personal. That's that's crucial for him. It's not ever just a mission. He cares. Carries still that compassion inside that led Erskine to choose him for Project Rebirth in the first place. And it's there at Camp Lehigh that Steve learns from Zola, the ghost in the machine, the Swiss bits, approximating his comics iteration in a really cool adaptation, too, of, of that comics idea, that look. Um, still the same idea of a person inside of a machine, but without the kind of hokey, like, uh, Humpty Dumpty kind of look. And had to make it feel of a piece with the general tone of this movie and managed to pull it off. I thought that was so cool and a really cool surprise, like, not something that I was expecting would happen. I was really shocked by it. It was really cool. And there he reveals the truth of Hydra's decades-long infiltration and secret growth, a cancer inside of S.H.I.E.L.D. You couldn't even call it infiltration, as he's one of the founding elements of this organization, really. It's like he's a, Hydra is, their ideology is foundational to S.H.I.E.L.D. They thought I could help the cause, Zola <laughs> tells them of Operation Paperclip. I also helped my own. Hydra died with the red skull. Steve says not knowing that the skull. Hashtag not dead. That's a rough one there for Steve. <laughs> Double whammy there. Shouts to my Vormir people. Thank God Steve's never been to Vormir and doesn't know about it because he uh. would be like, Wait a second. That's a tough update for him in the in the Avengers team <laughs> it's debrief. Really not. <laughs> when Hawkeye is like, "Hey, PS," yeah, pulls him aside. Listen, I got to tell you about what happened. Not just Nat dying, but <laughs> it's not one Steve's going to want to hear. I've got bad news and worse news, Steve. <laughs> yeah, cut off one head, two more shall take its place. Zola uh, Zola then provides proof that Steve asked for 
in the form of a montage that he made himself. Handy. He's got a lot of tape down there. He's got a lot of he's just a lot of time. Crushing tape. tape. <laughs> multitasking. As he does so, reminding us that as much as Steve's story in this film is anchored by a feeling of displacement, the corruption and deceit that he resents so fully now are ultimately a timeless thing. The shape and smell of that rot changes, but the nature of it absolutely does not. Hydra was founded on the belief that humanity could not be trusted with its own freedom, Zola says, and he may as well be Nick Fury here showing Steve the inside helicarriers or Pierce working the council. What we did not realize was that if you try to take that freedom, they resist. The war taught us much. Humanity needed to surrender its freedom willingly. For 70 years, Zola and Hydra sowed chaos, incepting humanity to arrive at this point of modern life, handing Hydra the weapons that Sitwell will explain on the roof, enable Project Insight's powers. And we see flashes of these atrocities, furies, we think at that time, assassination. Howard Stark's assassination, the deed, as we will learn in Civil War, carried out by Bucky that will further tear our heroes apart. Humanity is finally ready to sacrifice its freedom to gain its security, Zola says. His algorithm is not a Chitauri army or a Mjolnir smashing goddess of death or an infinity gauntlet. It's everything around us right now. Your death amounts to the same as your life, Zola tells Steve, a zero sum. But Steve is not interested in zero sum games. His whole existence centers on the idea of being able to tip the scales toward justice. We are both of us out of time, <laughs> Zola says. So is uh, Jasper Sitwell, mentioned above, who breaks like Senator Stern's back in his tryst with the hot constituent. In an April 2014 interview with Vultures, Kyle Buchanan, Marcus McFeely discussed the choice to make Sitwell and Stern's Hydra spies. Quote, with Sitwell, we needed to reveal someone who was boots on the ground, McFeely said, who you'd seen before to shake you up, short of bringing Agent Coulson back to life and turning him bad, which honestly would have been a gut punch and fucking amazing. The next part of this quote kills me. And we didn't know he could be brought back to life. He continues. Amazing. We had to use some returning characters to make this conspiracy story ring true. It can't be all new people who you're suddenly saying, and Bob from accounting, you've never met East Hydra too. You needed one or two recognizable faces to make the reveal resonate. Yes. And resonate it does. In the future, Steve asks about how Zola's algorithm functions. How could it know? How could it Well says, the 21st century is a digital book. Zola taught Hydra how to read it. Your bank records, medical histories, voting patterns, emails, phone calls, your damn SAT scores. Zola's algorithm evaluates people's past to predict their future. There's the earlier moment when he's talking to the agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and he mentions Twitter. It just feels, again, very of this moment. Unmasking intentions, in other words that may or may not have even formed robbing people. That's what this algorithm is about, of their free will, turning the world into a deterministic existence. It's like an episode of Devs, the tram lines proceeding just as Zola has foreseen. No room for choice or change or challenges. Life at S.H.I.E.L.D. is, of course, a finely laminated pastry dough of lies. Mm. Peel off one layer. Delicious. And more weight. It was built... To be that way, 
Yes. So even a moment of joy, like uh, realizing Nick is still alive, <laughs> is is one of those. Oh my god, they got me again. <laughs> moments for Steve and brings more tales <laughs> yeah. of pretense. Totally. Oh god. <laughs> even Nat. Yes. Used to uh, trading in lies and mm-hmm. deception. Lies, deception is bonnet. <laughs> is fucking dumbfounded. They cut you open. Nat says your heart stopped. Tetrodotoxin B slows the pulse to one beat a minute. Banner developed it for stress. Didn't work so great for him, but we found a use for it. These fucking guys, <laughs> unbelievable. Certainly not Bruce would want. We think. <laughs> Also, not what Steve or Nat wanted here. Hard to build trust with someone who absolutely did not trust you. But we all have our reasons. Fury thought he knew Pierce, thought he was building a better world with him. He said peace wasn't an achievement, Fury tells him. It was a responsibility. See, it's stuff like this that gives me (laughs) trust issues. Uh, Finding trust together, uh, of course, does not mean always agreeing. For for Fury and Steve, this moment of true unvarnished alliance is as much a matter of necessity as anything. They share a common rage here, but not necessarily identical ideals or even goals. Nick wants to, quote, salvage what's left, meaning of S.H.I.E.L.D. after they wipe out the carriers and Hydra. Steve, though, That's a non-starter for him. He knows that not even a vibranium scalpel could cut the parasite out that precisely, no matter how much it hurts to admit it. We're not salvaging anything, he says. We're not just taking down the carriers, Nick. We're taking down S.H.I.E.L.D. Steve's appeal across the PA system calls on everyone in the Triskelion to do what Steve and Nat and Sam and Nick and Hill just did. Look truth in the face and recognize it. S.H.I.E.L.D. is not what we thought it was. It's been taken over by Hydra. Which is like, imagine you're just like in the cafeteria once again, tucking into a veggie burger or what have you. You're like <laughs> mid-bite. Yeah, and Steve comes on the day. You're just like, you're just like, wait, what? <laughs> oh, man. Tough one for the, the office bowling league right there. This you know? is not good. <laughs> Here, the the person who works at the Panera, like on campus, like is just like, whoa, I gotta leave. He reveals the plot. He reveals the participants, and he continues. I know I'm asking a lot, and if I'm the only one, then so be it. But I'm willing to bet I'm not. And then Sam, did you write that down first, or was it off the top of your head? Sam, he already got his dick sucked in your house. Calm down. <laughs> God. (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh, Oh, man. It is an unnerving moment in the film. Not not the off-screen blowjob, the the speech here at, at Hydra headquarters. Not only because we're worried for our heroes, but because we don't know who will rise to meet the moment. When Sitwell first told S.H.I.E.L.D. to hunt down Steve, Sharon said they had a right to know why, but Sharon knows Steve, clearly likes Steve. What about everyone else? What regular person will stand up like the man in the crowd in Stuttgart Mm -hmm. who rose to face Mm -hmm. Loki in the Avengers? Some of these people know what S.H.I.E.L.D. really is, have seen moments that have to 
have raised their aroused their suspicion or are participating in it directly. Some really believe that they're working to help make the world safer and their entire existence has been shattered and called into question by what they just heard. So shouts to ship launcher guy who pulls an endgame cap. No, I don't think I will here. Shouts to him. <laughs> tells him to launch the carriers. Captain's orders, he says, as Sharon echoes him. Such a good moment. Hey, Cap, Sam asks Steve, how do I know the good guys from the bad guys? A nice encapsulation of the betrayal and the complexity of the situation they now face. Steve's reply, they're shooting at you, they're bad. Pretty great. Pierce, of course, isn't shooting, but he is clearly bad. Why make me head of S.H.I.E.L.D.? Fury asks after revealing himself to his now apparent enemy in one of the great, one of those great moments that doesn't involve Cap that is just like a super fun Mission Impossibly sequence. Because you were the best and the most ruthless person I ever met. Tough assessment from the guy <laughs> currently yeah. trying to gun down over 700,000 people from the sky <laughs> right now. Yes. Our enemies are your enemies, Nick. Disorder. War. He calls diplomacy a holding action and cites their, their common history together. Bogota. I love one of my favorite <laughs> of MCU bits is just saying the name of a city and referencing something that happened there. Well, and Vienna? with Mercuria, it's always a city with a B. It's always a city with a B, right? Yeah, Budapest. It's the <gasps> next step, Nick, if you have the courage to take it. And this is, uh, of course, galling for Fury, repackaging his yeah. past actions, which he took and undertook according to a social compact that doesn't exist anymore. And taking that and uh, making it part of Hydra's quest, making it part and parcel with Hydra's quest. But there has to be part of him that's also horrified by kind of how right Pierce is by the line he and S.H.I.E.L.D. walked for so long. By, in essence, what Steve has been telling him. No, he tells Pierce. I have the courage not to. And what more fitting image than S.H.I.E.L.D.'s, Hydra's own carriers turning on each other, gunning yes. each other down out of the sky, built up and brought down from within. All right, let's chat about Steve and Bucky for a moment here. When Steve is feeling unmoored by S.H.I.E.L.D.'s deception early in the film, deception! he goes... <laughs> he goes to the Smithsonian, not to soak up his own memories of glory, but to anchor himself in the familiar, in the past. His war, his Howling Commandos, his Bucky, his Peggy. He visits Peggy for the same reason. It's been so long, so long, she says. Well, I couldn't leave my best girl, not when she owes me a dance. And one of the saddest moments in the movie comes when Steve visits Peggy in her hospital bed. Not just because we see how her memory is failing her or the chasm of time that is opened between them, but because of what she says to him. Mm, I have lived a life. And that contrast to Steve in that moment who feels so stuck, famous for being the platonic ideal, humanity perfected, but he doesn't know how to put one foot in front of the other right now. Everyone idolizes him, and he can't even trust himself to make the right decisions for as long as I can remember, he tells Peggy. I just wanted to do what was right. I guess I'm not quite sure what that is anymore. That complete lack of certainty defines Bucky's entrance into the story. Who is this shadowy, masked figure, so lethal, attacking Fury in the street? 
the music from composer Henry Jackman that accompanies the Winter Soldier's appearance <laughs> matches the mood. It's uneasy, unsure, menacing, almost yes. daring you to look. When Steve chases the Winter Soldier after the attempt on Fury's life, we get one of the best moments in the movie. Buck just casually catching Cap Shield in his titanium one day vibranium arm Chills. and looking back over at Steve. Man, the vibranium arm. Talk about it. We will. <laughs> I can't wait to talk about it. He's got an arm that's probably worth like half a bill. Again, we we don't have time for it today, but that was the logic to making him a chaser. We don't need to get back. To, we don't need to go there. But you can't stop the quaffle if you're shooting it with a vibranium arm. I'll just say that. Carry on. Um, Steve doesn't yet know who resides behind the mask. And really, I'll... Just a shocking amount of eye black here. It's it's great. A very early season of Arrow, Oliver Queen action here around Bucky's eyes, and I'm I'm a fan. But he can clearly feel some sort of frisson of understanding right. of recognition. He senses something, just as in the Winter Soldier comics. There's a nagging sense that mm, something is not right, even in a world of lies. This feels out of place. This feels strangely personal. Yes. When the Winter Soldier attacks Steve, Matt, Sam, and that fucker Sitwell on the highway, his viciousness, his violence and strength is astonishing to witness. He is relentless. He may only have that one metal arm, but he is a, a machine, a killing machine. He's a match for Nat. He's even a match for Steve. Their movements kind of mirror each other. There's a nice poetic resonance to that. There's a harmony for them among the brutality. They're in sync, but opposed. Steve's working with his shield. The soldier working with his knife. <clears throat> Defense, offense. And when Steve pulls off the soldier's mask and reveals the face, and what a face it is. Beneath, Hello. <gasps> the <sighs> air and the sound are sucked out of the scene. Bucky He's just in awe. Who the hell is Bucky <laughs> is the reply. Now think about what Steve Rogers is feeling here as the Winter Soldier's identity is revealed. James Buchanan Bards, Bucky. The joy, the relief, the glee to see his best friend, his brother, whom he's long thought dead and has, has borne personal responsibility for is alive. But also, the horror, the complete horror over what Bucky has done, a person Steve cares about that, that much has done, and what others have made him do. The shame over not knowing about it, not being able to help, and then the absolute dread over knowing what has to happen now, what he has to do now. It was him. Steve tells Sam and Nat, he looked right at me and he didn't even know me. You're so absolutely right. It's like of all the Steve is unmoored by everything that's been going on that he's been experiencing in his work with S.H.I.E.L.D. and his relationships with all the people that he thinks ostensibly are on his side. But to see this, it must be it must feel like the the most utter perversion of everything he's ever believed in or thought possible. What an astounding and soul-destroying moment for Steve. In that 2014 interview with the Washington Post, Joe Russo discussed this idea. The hero is only defined by the strength of a villain. And this is an incredible villain because he can emotionally undermine the hero. So, so smart, man. 
With Bucky, of course, the real tragedy is that he doesn't know himself. But after his latest encounter with Steve, his best pal looking to his eyes and saying his name, all that brainwashing, all that memory reconstruction is starting to crumble. And he's experiencing something like an awakening as the Hydra docks work to repair his arm. He sees flashes of his former life, Zola finding him, the fall, losing his arm, the procedure to make him what he is now, this thing, the cryosleep. You are to be the new fist of Hydra, we hear Zola say. Bucky asks Pierce who Steve is, but his desire to unmask Steve's identity is really a desire to uh, understand his own identity. To understand their bond would be to understand the truth of his own life. Your work has been a gift to mankind, Pierce tells him. You shaped the century. One of the more chilling moments of the movie, really, seeing how much horror Bucky has unleashed and how little grasp he has over it, how little control. He's been Hydra's pawn, an agent of chaos in a game designed to create chaos. They wipe him, his memories, talking about him like he's a drive, not a human being, not to free him of these worries, but to control him, to keep the blindfold on. Bucky's not the only one remembering. Steve is also flashing back to the past, not to just the trauma of Bucky's death, but to the real wonder and constancy of their friendship to the day of his own mother's funeral. Thank you, Buck, but I can get by on my own, Steve told him then, after Bucky had invited him to move in. This part makes me cry. (laughs) So sweet. The thing is, Bucky says to him, you don't have to. I'm with you to the end of the line, pal. Sam can recognize the state that Steve is in over this. Look, whoever he used to be, Sam tells him, the guy he is now, I don't think he's the kind you save. He's the kind you stop. Oh, man. And Steve says, I don't know if I can do that. His determination to wipe out all aspects of Hydra and S.H.I.E.L.D. stops there. He can't wipe out Bucky. He has to find a way to show Bucky who he is, who they are. People are going to die, Buck, Steve says as they uh, confront each other aboard the third helicarrier, the last one without the targeting blades installed. I can't let that happen. Please don't make me do this. Buck, not an ideal when your best friend shoots you three times, but as Don Draper would say, that's what the serum's for. (laughs) Fire, do it, Steve tells Hill. Remember what he did in the first Avenger, throwing himself atop the dummy grenade piloting the Valkyrie down into the Arctic. Remember what galled him so much about Tony and the Avengers, that Mm -hmm. he does not seem like the guy. Right. Did not at that time seem like the guy who would have uh, laid down on the wire, let the rest of the team get the win, sacrifice themselves for the good of the larger group. That willingness to sacrifice themselves, do what's necessary to protect, is ingrained in him, ingrained in his spirit. The true heart of that is what the serum amplified in the first place. For that reason, of course, he cannot leave Bucky pinned beneath the metal beams of the helicarrier. You know me, he says. No, I don't. Bucky, you've known me your whole life. Your name is James Buchanan Barnes. Shut up! And Steve takes off his helmet at this point, revealing his face, shedding his protection. The carrier is going down, but he drops his shield, drops his defenses, drops any pretense that he can inflict more harm onto this person he cares about so much. I'm not going to fight you. He says, you're my friend. (laughs) To which Bucky says, you're my mission. You're my mission. Then 
finish it, Steve says. And Bucky's just pummeling him, like beating his face into a pulp here. And then he quotes Bucky's own line back to him because I'm with you to the end of the line. Bucky's words, Bucky's sentiment from their shared history together. And that history penetrates the decades of Hydra brainwashing. He lets him go. They have a lot of work to do together still, and that work will define much of what is to come in Captain America Civil War. But Steve Rogers has made his choice. He's not going to fight for a faceless behemoth that he can't trust, understand, or even really see. He's going to fight for what and who he knows. And Bucky has made his choice, too. He pulls Steve from the water and then in the stinger puts on his own logo-less cap and everyone just blending in seamlessly at the Smithsonian. (laughs) Standing in front of his own picture, unrecognizable to everybody around him. Bucky, we should uh, introduce you to the internet that Steve is so fond of. I know. (laughs) But Bucky, too, is looking to unmask the truth of his own life at last. Talk about Matt and Steve for a few minutes here, if we can contain ourselves. (laughs) Yeah, let's uh, let's do that. Steve, you should insert some like real sex music right here. Um, let's talk about oh, man. for a moment. Yep, the chemistry between these two because it is it is something, folks. I'm you're feeling it, you're seeing it, you're hearing it. You can smell it, you can taste it. It's all Jesus. right there. A carnival of the senses in every scene that they are sharing. A force on par with the storm inside Mjolnir. You can barely contain it. (laughs) Folks, let's start with Nat's uh, text. Yeah. First text to Steve in the opening minutes of this movie. Mission alert. Extraction imminent. Meet at the curb. Smiley face. Nat's greeting. Hey, fellas. It's about it's all about the line reading too, the so, way so she good. like purrs <laughs> it out. Pulls uh, up, right? Head cocked, very casual. <laughs> hey fellas, either one of you know where the Smithsonian is? I'm here to pick up a fossil. That's hilarious. It actually is. is. The response. This is my favorite Black Widow movie. This She's, is the best we get from that. Crushing it. Rewatching this, I was like, I can't wait for Black Widow because, again, we'll, that will be a political thriller. That will be a spy thriller. And she is so engaging and compelling in this kind of genre. I can't wait. Nat is deeply invested in this movie and getting Steve to live, to experience all the post-2000s America has to offer, like Odin trying to get Thor to sleep with Sif, which it's like, dad, chill. Only way less creepy. And so much of the movie's (laughs) charm comes from these moments on the plane before the Lemurian star mission. Did you do anything fun on Saturday night? Well, all the guys from my barbershop quartet are dead, so no, not really. You know, if you ask Kristen out from statistics, she'd probably say yes. That's why I don't ask. Too shy or too scared. Too busy! (laughs) And then on the ship, what about the nurse that lives across the hall from you? She seems kind of nice. Secure the engine room, then find me a date. (laughs) I love it. But it is not just innuendo with them. There's tenderness and vulnerability and the desire to be able to rely on even just one other person occasionally. Fury's death 
his seeming death, really gutted Nat. But she didn't linger in that state. She launched into the same plane of suspicion that had consumed Steve and Nick. Why was Fury in your apartment? And then when he <laughs> tries to deflect, you're a terrible liar. She really sees him clearly there. Because Steve hid the intel that Nick nearly died for behind what appears to be three and merely three packs of hubba bubba in the vending yeah, machine. Like, bury it a little deeper, my guy. Nat found it with ease. That did make me crave some bubble gum. When I was a kid, I used to buy packs and packs and packs of, of mm. bubble gum. And watermelon was my favorite flavor. And I, would, I would chew like five pieces at once. I, it's honestly amazing I have any teeth. For me, it was all so about um, one of the greatest tobacco indoctrination products oh boy. ever created, Big League Chew. Oh, I love big like I love the big because it's just a big bag of of shredded gum. <laughs> it's so good. I I still buy that sometimes. I love the grape flavor. It's a little change of pace. I have some of that. I think if I went to my office right now and dug through the quarantine snack collection or the pre-quarantine snack collection, I think I have a bag of big league chew in there. I fucking I fucking love <sighs> big league chew. What's on it, Steve Asnat? I don't know. Stop lying. I only act like I know everything. Rogers. One thing she does know, the Winter Soldier. Yes. A ghost story, as Steve says. And then, she, of course, she tells him the tale of an extraction, the Winter Soldier attacking the person she's trying to extract, assassinating the victim by shooting through her body. And even amid these tensions, the flirtation unceasing. Nat shows off the scar. This is a great moment. Soviet slug, no rifling. Bye-bye bikinis. Yeah, I bet you look terrible in them now. (laughs) (laughs) Guys, Um, knock it off, okay? We're trying to uncover a vast uh, Nazi conspiracy. (laughs) Also, like, just the flirtation is unbelievable. You could just be like, yeah, shot me. But she's like, well, I got to show you. Can I just, let me just show you where (laughs) on the bikini line right here, Steve. Also, Steve, when Steve sees the advancements in bikini fashions, he is going to be, uh, he's going to be floored. It's probably been a confusing few years for him. (laughs) Time to dress up like regular people for the uh, Apple store scene in Super Vader satellite high tops. And can we talk, can we talk about this for a second? Yeah, absolutely. What do you think of the look that that Steve is rocking here? And Nat pulls it off. The striped hoodie, the high tops, the jeans. Steve's I mean, that's- effort. Of course, the logoless hat thing is a, a Marvel staple. Read Andrew Grotadaro's great yes. ringer piece on this. I want him to be like leaning into a sense of fashion that feels truer to who he is. Now, I know that he's trying to go undercover, right? But these are not the sneakers that I think Steve Rogers would wear. Absolutely fucking not. He's a Zoom fly guy for the running, you know? He's going to, he's, I feel like he's like a New Balance guy. He's wearing like the most well, he wears shit that he. He wears Nike running shoes elsewhere in the film. Yeah. But he also, he wears the Under Armour workout shirt when he's, when he's running at the beginning of the movie with Sam. He's just a man. He's not only a man at a time. He's a man waiting for a shoe endorsement. That's what he is. Someone lock him down. 
So they go to the Apple store and we'll note, if you know Shield can find you in seconds. Yes. Thanks to the level six homing program on this. Maybe don't do this in the mall. Get out like, of a nine you... minute drive radius. Yeah, go, go a little further away. Go into the country. In. What are you doing? Anyway. <sighs> also just endangering a lot of people there, but yeah. So it goes. The disguise isn't just the logoless hat, the hoodies, the jackets, the glasses. It's being super attracted to each other. That helps. Arm around Nat's shoulder, giggles, escalator, smooches. It honestly seems fucking great to be on the run with Nat and Cap. That's my take. I mean, it actually doesn't seem that great because you'd be the third wheel just being like, guys, just fuck already. Maybe Maybe they're into it. Maybe they're into a third wheel, though. I I guarantee you, Steve is not ready for that. (gasps) I mean, he's not ready for a lip piercing, as he says. So he's probably not ready for a threesome. But, you know, all a matter of time. Kiss me, Nat says. What? Public displays of infection make people very uncomfortable. Yes, they do. Then they kiss to get Rumlow to look away. You still uncomfortable? That's not exactly the word I would use. You can almost see him. The camera cuts off above the waist, but I feel like our mind completes the image and we can just see him tucking his boner as they continue to escape. <laughs> and then we get the iconic exchange in the car ride to New Jersey. He definitely has a hitch in his step as he's walking away. <laughs> oh, God. Was that your first kiss? Since 1945, Nat asked him, that bad, huh? <laughs> Such a good scene. I didn't say that. Well, it kind of sounds like that's what you're saying. No, I didn't. I just wondered how much practice you had. You don't need practice. Everybody needs practice. I, I'll just observe that this sounds like an invitation here. The everybody needs practice it's line. A clear, but first of all, it's clearly an invitation. It's cl- <laughs> that's what it is. Everybody needs practice. So let's practice. Pull over. Not a lot of other people on the road. Let's use this stolen vehicle for a little practice, just as we will very soon use Sam's quarters. Cap's reply. Absolutely top-tier evidence in the Cap fucks debate. Oh, yeah. It was not my first kiss since 1945. I'm 95. I'm not dead. Cap fucks. Even in the seemingly most benign, the sweetest, the most heartfelt terminology that Cap uses, best girl, best implies what? Numerous. Yeah. (laughs) Speaking of that someone special, Nat asks him, hey, is anyone anyone close to you? And his reaction for there not being is pretty heartbreaking, especially in light of how we know he misses Peggy. He can't find anyone he can relate to. Nat's suggestion is to lie his way to common ground. Steve is, of course, not game for this, but to Nat, it's tantamount to survival, to get by, to blend in, to infiltrate. Lay low. What, like you? He says, I don't know. The truth is a matter of circumstance. It's not all things to all people all the time. Neither am I. It's a tough way to live. It's a good way not to die, though. You know, it's kind of hard to trust someone when you don't know who that someone really is. Yeah, who do you want me to be? How about a friend? (sighs) This, it's uh, like, guys. Oh, God. I was thinking some role play. <laughs> I know. Well, there's a chance you might be in the wrong business, Rogers. For Steve, though, that's why he got into this business, to do the part for the people that he cares about. As Nat and Steve sit on 
Sam's bed, which again, I think we've clearly established at this point, we believe they definitely fucked in and tidy up Sam's bathroom, which again, they definitely fucked. I mean, they're cleaning up together, yeah, come on. right? They're cleaning up. They're in, she's... They're Not just the like, dust from the bunker explosion, a different kind of explosion that they had to clean up. They're in a state of noticeable undress. It's not, they're not nude. Like nobody has their top off or anything, but they're in a state of dress that you would only be in, in close quarters like that with another person if you had just fucked or are getting ready to. Like, yeah. I mean, they're washing up, right? But yeah, for what? Come on, folks. <laughs> and in this sequence, Nat is not only drying her hair, but she is bearing her soul. When I first joined S.H.I.E.L.D., I thought I was going straight, but I guess I just traded in the KGB for Hydra. I thought I knew whose lies I was telling, but I guess I can't tell the difference anymore. Sounds a bit, a bit like Steve when he was speaking to Peggy earlier. There's a chance you might be in the wrong business, he says here to Nat. There is something really elemental in this exchange, not only about Nat and Steve's journeys, but all of the Avengers, really. Mm -hmm. It will define much of the films to come, from Ultron to Civil War to Endgame. You need to be able to rely on your fellow heroes, yes, but you can't do that unless you can first trust yourself, the decisions you're making, to make the right read, to know whom to align with, to know what battle to fight. Sometimes you only build that over time. If it was the other way around and it was down to me to save your life, now you be honest with me. Would you trust me to do it? I would now. Says. Indeed. <laughs> Steve's decision to take down S.H.I.E.L.D. affected Nat more than most, as Pierce is all too happy to remind her after her delicious, I'm sorry, did I just step on your moment? <laughs> Incursion. The Mission Impossible nods go right down to the faux faces, the tree literally yeah. unmasked when Nat reveals herself. Great, great moment. If you do this, Pierce tells her, none of your past is going to remain hidden. Are you sure you're ready for the world to see you the way you really are? And it's a really good pitch. Remember from Nat's exchange with Loki and the Avengers how red that ledger is, but she is ready. Although it's a great scene for Scarjo because she, I'm not going to say she hesitates, but it hits her. You see Absolutely. it hit her. The truth of it. Yeah, it absolutely yeah, hits right. her. She steals herself to go through with it. And again, she doesn't hesitate, but she does have to gird herself to do it. Absolutely. She's ready. And then her reply is great. Are you? Love that. Her willingness extends to electrocuting herself to get the best of Pierce. She's not afraid, really, of anything other than what you just observed. Her own fear. But as Lupin would tell us, that is very wise. She faces down the committee at the end with courage. And on a rewatch, it's it's really unsettling to take in that scene, knowing what's to come in Ultron, the divide between our heroes mm -hmm. and the government, our heroes and each other. Nat's own role moving between the sides. You need us, she tells the committee, pointing out the contradiction at play in so many of these stories and the one that will become the heart of such tension in the films moving forward. Yes, the world is a vulnerable place. And yes, we helped make it that way. But we're also the ones best qualified to defend it. What makes that statement different from, say, Aldrich Killian boasting about the supply and demand economy of terror creating the problem that he could then solve? Intention, remorse, accountability, acknowledging the truth of what has unfolded and why. Very quickly here, Steve and Sam, a new bond, one that is so instant you feel it not only in your heart, but on your left. And we have to observe here that, that Cram 
remarked upon Steve's shoddy running etiquette that he didn't give Sam <laughs> enough enough time, enough warning with the on your Get left calls. Great stuff from Graham, a running enthusiast. He, I mean, it's like he's screaming it. I don't have to worry about running etiquette from my couch in my pajamas, chewing my hubba bubba. So I'm not familiar with what uh, is expected out on the track. That bond, the quickness of it, that all unfolds before Steve even knows that Sam is Falcon. Their connection is not about suits. It's about serving. Must have freaked you out, Sam says after the run. Coming home after the whole defrosting thing, it takes some getting used to. It's good to meet you, Sam. It's your bed, right? What's that? Your bed? It's too soft. They have this instant shorthand together, this understanding rooted in shared experience, despite that experience for them coming in different places and decades apart. Mm. We feel it in the VA scene, a great scene, when Steve visits Sam. We all get the same problem, guilt, regret. Steve feels so isolated, but hearing something like this from Sam, hearing his story about Riley, his wingman that he lost, grounds Steve in common purpose. And surely this setting, people sharing their feelings, is something that made an impact on Steve and is something that he carries forward in his life as we move into the other movies. What makes you happy? Sam asks. I don't know, Steve says, which is just such a crushing and relatable moment. Steve knows that in a world upended by doubt, he can rely on Sam, a person he's spoken to a grand total of two times. And Sam, of course, repays that faith. Everyone we know is trying to kill us. Not everyone, he says. What's this? <laughs> Cap asks when Sam tosses his folder on the table as they discuss how to apprehend Sitwell. Call it a resume. Sam is not a pilot, as Steve thought. Who's this guy? He'll last during the breakout attempt hilariously while he's Falcon. He's a soldier and he is an Avenger. He's made for it. Sam's dude, Captain America needs my helpline is meant to link us almost with, with him. Who wouldn't want to get the call from Cap or any superhero? But the relatability of that should not diminish how breathtaking it is that Sam jumps right into the heat of battle against S.H.I.E.L.D. That is no small or easy thing, especially for somebody who has made the transition in his life that he has. The report is so fast-forming that Steve literally jumps into the sky knowing Sam yep. will catch it. You know, you're a lot heavier than you look. He does, He's like 220-ish, whatever it is, with his super soldier physique. I had a big breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> so good. <sighs> now, there's only one Bucky, of course, but seeing Sam step into the same role yes. by Steve's side in a movie built around the idea of what Bucky meant to Steve is just so powerful. When he's grounded, he doesn't stop. He takes on Rumlow hand-to-hand. He gets his butt kicked, but that's fine. <laughs> Dives out of... In what is truly a mind-boggling moment, he dives out of a building and lands in a moving helicopter and then has the, the, has the, the absolute on the outside. <laughs> has the fucking gall to bitch out Natasha and Fear. He did say the 41st floor. He was very Are you sick? Wait, you're complaining about this. <laughs> Listen. He caught you. It, they didn't have to. They could have been like, well, you know, I don't even, I Thanks don't even know how to get over there. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. None of that, though, is as impressive as the fact that he's just sitting there by Steve's side in the hospital at the end playing Trouble Man for him. Or that he shows up at Fury's fake 
gravesite. He's there with Steve by his side, and he will be until Cap hands over his shield in Avengers Endgame in one of the most touching moments of the entire series, ushering in a new era for Sam and for us and for the MCU. How does it feel, Steve will ask Sam then, like it's someone else's? And what will Steve tell him? It isn't. Because Sam is not just Steve's new wingman. He's a new hero, and he's on our right. Jason? Yes. Project Insight has to be delayed. Mal, that's not a favor. That's a subcommittee hearing. I know, but it has to be delayed because it's time for another history lesson. So please gather the masters of the mystic arts. Head to the sanctum sanctorum of your choosing. Tell us everything we need to know about the comics canon that inspired Captain America, the Winter Soldier. Captain America, the Winter Soldier, pulls from primarily from two comics arcs, 1988 six-issue limited series Nick Fury vs. S.H.I.E.L.D. and 2004's Winter Soldier storyline that spanned several issues of Captain America, Volume 5. Both arcs overturned and recontextualized years of comics canon in Nick Fury vs. S.H.I.E.L.D. Director Fury uncovers, slowly, bit by bit, a conspiracy <laughs> linking S.H.I.E.L.D., AIM, Advanced Idea Mechanics, Hydra, and the Roxxon Corporation. This being S.H.I.E.L.D., the story begins the only place it really could. (laughs) (laughs) With a crashed helicarrier. (laughs) Stay off of these things, folks. Oh, my God. (laughs) All all they do is crash. That's all they do. (laughs) No safer place, Jay. Zero safer place in the Marvel Universe than the fucking helicarrier. That and the X-Mansion. Those things, those two things get blown up all the time. Nick and a crack team of techs and agents rush to New Mexico to salvage the ship's advanced power generator before it falls into the wrong hands or goes critical and wipes out a large portion of the Southwest U.S. Nick goes into the wreck himself and it's touch and go, but in the end, Fury and the team manage to secure the power core by placing it in a large radiation-proof container. And they've just finished this and now they're decontaminating each other when, oh, what's this? An AIM ship arrives on the scene. More troubling still, <laughs> an army of fighters pouring out of the craft are not the AIM scientists with those cylindrical helmets, but hardcore Hydra terrorists. Now, AIM mm. began as a division of Hydra. So an alliance between the two groups certainly isn't unthinkable and it has been something that S.H.I.E.L.D. has been uh, preparing for. But it's certainly a severe threat escalation that S.H.I.E.L.D., the foremost intelligence security service in the world, was not prepared for in this instance. The AIM Hydra ambush is a success, and the terrorists beam the power core up to their ship, and they fly away. The bodies are still smoking when Nick Fury gets a call on one of his secure communications channels. It's Agent Rollins requesting a meeting. Rollins is deep undercover at Roxxon as a computer programmer, and while burrowing into the computer network to keep an eye on uh, the oil companies, the energy companies, various illegal enterprises, he has discovered something. Now, he reports directly to Fury, and over the past few months, Rollins has been hearing company gossip about a program called Delta, digs into it and is not able to discover what it actually is, but he could see that Roxxon is just spending huge, huge, huge amounts of money on the program. Now, the word Delta rings a bell with Nick. S.H.I.E.L.D., once upon a time, used to have an agent retraining program by that name. 
and Rollins is able to get assigned to the lowest levels of Delta after a while, and eventually he hacked rocks on security codes. He shows Nick what he found at their meeting, a complete dossier on S.H.I.E.L.D. from soup to nuts, the exact number of agents, 4,232, their identities, technical specs for the helicarrier, uh-oh, and oh its top-secret <laughs> power core. All of this on Roxxon's computer servers. Nick and Rawlings explore the Delta facility, and they see that it goes down for miles, 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 straight down into the Earth, like something out of Star Wars. It looks like, uh, uh, like part of the Death Star facility. They witness a procession of people down there, dressed in robes like adherents to a strange cult, and they're carrying the core. Nick leaves. He goes back to S.H.I.E.L.D. HQ in New York City, and he reports the data breach to the World Security Council. They're concerned, but they're really not alarmed. Later, the council calls Nick back in, and they're like... We've investigated this. P.S. It's like an hour and a half later. It's the same day. <laughs> like he goes <laughs> thorough it, thorough investigation. Found no evidence to support your allegations, Mr. Fury. When Fury asks, what? How do you come to this conclusion? Rollins appears, Agent Rollins, and testifies essentially that he has no idea what Nick is talking about. And the council then orders Nick taken into custody. But this is Nick Fury. He's slippery. He escapes the building and disappears. Over the next five issues, Nick gradually learns the shocking truth. The Delta program has been covertly producing advanced life model decoys. You always knew these things were going to be a problem from the very first time that they were incorporated. Delta itself in the shocking twist of twists, is run by a rogue LMD. Years ago, at the dawn of the agency, an LMD created for menial dangerous work just grew curious, and when it could, it would sneak away exploring the facility that was its home. After a time, it discovered the LMD laboratory and what would be its treasure, the S.H.I.E.L.D. personality tapes. Now, the tapes were an archive of its various, of the, the agency's, agents' personalities, which S.H.I.E.L.D. would then use to program LMDs so that they could accurately duplicate a subject's behavior. One night, our curious LMD murdered the chief of LMD research, used his personality tape to program itself, entered the body molds, and molded itself to look like the chief, and then proceeded to carry on as the LMD chief of research. Quote, to avoid suspicion, I made the duplicate of my original persona to carry on my menial labor, the LMD tells Nick. The LMD's thirst for knowledge and understanding was uh, absolutely boundless. As the chief researcher, the LMD studied S.H.I.E.L.D.'s files and came to a realization. Quote, I was created to maintain S.H.I.E.L.D. S.H.I.E.L.D. was created to maintain the peace and order of the world. I saw I could extend my primal purpose by expanding S.H.I.E.L.D.'s manifesto, the world was in chaos. Wars, famine, depression, murder. The list goes drearily on. The world needed an overseer. And quote. Tale as old as time right there. As huh? old as time, folks. <laughs> now, over time, it added many more personalities to its growing consciousness to help it achieve it, this new goal. It added Baron Strucker and Edward Booth to allow it to infiltrate Hydra and AIM, respectively. With Tony Stark's personality and intellect, the LMD was able to accumulate wealth and stealthily take over Roxxon. It created an LMD army, but also wary of rivals, it created a religion to keep them controlled. He didn't want the thing that created him to cause another LMD to come along and to overthrow 
him. So it created this robed religion that that Nick Fury had witnessed. It used S.H.I.E.L.D.'s telepath division to read the minds of agents and find the ones that would simply follow orders and use their personality tapes to encode the deltites of Delta program. Now, these were biological LMDs, anatomically identical to their human dupes, the perfect copies, except for one small thing, the deltites aged at a much faster rate than humans. Their bodies would need to be replaced again and again and again. Now, by this time, the LMD had placed deltites into the leadership leadership positions of Hydra, AIM, and Roxxon, and an unknown amount of S.H.I.E.L.D. and at least three members of the Security Council were all compromised. In fact, its control was so complete that it was the LMD that managed to get Nick Fury nominated as director of the agency. (laughs) What? Nick's military background and his preference for efficiency and chain of command made it just easier for the LMD to slip its deltites into key positions. It was close to its goal of world domination right there, but the aging problem threatened the entire project. The final piece, the solution to this problem lurked in Nick's own body, the Infinity Formula. Now let's step outside Marvel canon for a second. Nick Fury, as a character, has been active in comics since World War II as a member of the Howling Commandos, an agent of the CIA, and later director of S.H.I.E.L.D. Nick has always been depicted since the very first as kind of like a middle-aged guy, older than most Marvel comic characters. But by the 1970s, some kind of explanation to Nick's lack of aging was necessary since, like Captain America, the character's World War II roots were integral to the character and could not be retconned. And unlike Cap, there was no multi-decade ice nap to make the continuity work. So enter the Infinity Formula, created by Jim Starlin and Howard Chaikin. The formula debuted in 1976's Marvel Spotlight number 31. And all you need to know is this. It makes him age real slow. That's all it does. <laughs> Back to the story. Because the formula could never be properly recreated. And what is it with these formulas Convenient. and serums? They can never recreate it. <laughs> the LMDs oh, man. had originally planned to extract it directly from Fury, but it, it's they, they could never resynthesize it on its own, right? So what it needed to do was capture Fury and extract it directly from Fury's body. And it almost worked. The good guys, of course, always win in the comics. The Deltite version of S.H.I.E.L.D. super agent Clay Quartermain retained enough of his uh, actual goodness within his personality and rebelled, turned against the Deltites and against the LMD. The remaining S.H.I.E.L.D. doppelgangers, disillusioned, chose to die rather than pursue their creator's dream. When it's all said and done, S.H.I.E.L.D. having shown itself to be a massive... (laughs) After this, a massive and near fatal risk to the security of the entire world is disbanded and replaced by a brand new security apparatus called, wait for it, S.H.I.E.L.D. (laughs) (laughs) Originally, originally, S.H.I.E.L.D. was the Supreme Headquarters International Espionage and Law Enforcement Division, the new S.H.I.E.L.D., would be the Strategic <laughs> Hazard Intervention Espionage Logistics Directorate and was organized under the auspices of the UN. God, some rebrand. Yes, incredible rebrand, folks. This new smaller agency was supposed to be more streamlined and easier for Fury to control. But of course, this was S.H.I.E.L.D. and it was soon fattened up by shadowy tax dollars and back to carrying out unsanctioned missions, including attempted assassinations on foreign soil. Let's quickly talk about the Winter Soldier, 
now, the saying used to be that in comics, no one stayed dead except for Uncle Ben and Bucky. Well, in 2004, longtime Captain America scribe Ed Brubaker brought Bucky back from the dead in the form of the Winter Soldier, a brainwashed super assassin used as a tool by the Soviets. We talked in our Captain America the First Avengers pod about how Bucky Barnes was originally depicted as this plucky teen who hung out around the army base. And one day he happened to see Steve's raw dick as he was changing into his cap <laughs> uniform. And to keep him quiet, Steve was like, yeah, I'll take you on as a sidekick, kid. <laughs> well, in the Winter Soldier retcon, oh we God. find out that that was all a cover story. The real Bucky was a highly trained assassin a skilled specialist in the quiet kill and the way of the knife. Quote, Bucky did things I couldn't, Cap says, thinking back to a crucial battle on the Eastern Front in 1941, during which Barnes crawled forward under barbed wire to personally snuff the life out of numerous Nazis. Quote, I was the icon. I wore the flag. But while I gave speeches to troops in the trenches, he was doing what he'd been trained to do. And he was highly trained. Oof. That's about as... High praise as it gets. Now, eventually, of course, Bucky is killed in action over the English Channel or in Greenland somewhere, whatever. The location has changed numerous times. Wherever it was, it's important that we understand this. The water was very, very, very cold. Soviet General Vasily Karpov happens to be close by in an experimental Russian submarine. His comms officer picks up a message that Captain America was killed in the area. Now, Seeing an opportunity to seize top-secret war material, Karpov speeds to the area. Bucky's mangled body is brought on board. And when he sees it's not Captain America, Karpov is not at all deterred. He sets about creating the perfect assassin, one who could blend in amongst Americans and operate undetected in Western nations. Bucky's corpse is thawed out and tested for any traces of super soldier serum. Nada. So that was an issue. A bigger issue, of course, was the fact that Bucky was fucking dead. Not, it's, this isn't a Steve Rogers situation where the ice is frozen in the ice, you know, uh, life signs at a very low level, frozen in time. No, 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 no. No life signs, no brain activity, nothing. He's dead. But the water in which Bucky was found was very cold, which allowed the Russians to treat the body as if it had just expired. They administered oxygen. They did some chest compressions. They applied the shocker paddles and voila, Bucky back. Now, due to the severe brain injuries he had suffered, Barnes had no memories of his previous life. He acted purely on instinct. He lashed out against his doctors and gibbered in four different languages. Russian scientists using schematics stolen from Britain's MI6 fitted Barnes with a bionic arm, and then he was subjected to elaborate and horrific mind control techniques. From General Karpov's 1954 report on Project Winter Soldier, quote, because of the Americans' memory loss, it was quite simple. We were able to reprogram the Americans' mind. We gave him a purpose and made him loyal to no one but us, end quote. Initial field tests were simply an astounding success. Winter Soldier was able to slip in and out of the American sector of Berlin, mingling with American personnel, carrying out sabotage or assassination operations, and able to slip away again, all undetected. Quote, as predicted, Karpov writes, Americans and their allies mistake him for one of their own. Winter Soldier carried out numerous hits in the first few years of operation. The entire UN diplomatic negotiations team in 1955, British Ambassador to Madripoor Dalton Grains in 1956, United States Colonel Jefferson Hart in 1957, and many, many, many more. 
It's during this period that Winter Soldier first met Natasha Romanoff, the Black Widow, in the Red Room Department X's spy school. Winter Soldier helped train Nat, and the two struck up a doomed relationship. Now, in the comics, Black Widow also ages at a slow rate uh, due to uh, the her heavily bioengineered anatomy. That's for a later date. Winter Soldier's Russian handlers had concerns about the integrity of his uh, mental programming by the summer of 1957. A report from June of that year stated that, quote, Department X's science team believes that his mental state is becoming unstable, end quote. Most concerning was that the Winter Soldier had begun questioning orders, not simply carrying them out like an automaton. Department X's solution? Place Barnes in stasis between missions and have him undergo additional brainwashing each time he's reawakened. This new operational process worked for many years, up until 1973. After carrying out the assassination of a senator, U.S. senator on American soil, Barnes didn't show up to his extraction point. Acting on some kind of buried instinct, Barnes traveled cross-country to New York City, where he was able to wander undetected for weeks until he was eventually uh, discovered by Department X and, and brought home. He was hanging out in a homeless shelter for an un, for. Days and days and days. Since rediscovering his past, the Winter Soldier has, in the words of Obadiah Stane, had a few upgrades of his own. In the Fear <laughs> Itself storyline, uh, Nick Fury saves Bucky's life by, guess what, injecting him with the very last don't dose. Don't say it. The last don't say one. it. <laughs> how many, and by the way, how many last doses in the Marvel so a lot. comics universe are there? The very last dose of the Infinity formula, which uh, basically souped up Bucky. Now he ages at a slower rate. Biological body is stronger than a normal person's body. So our friends Bucky, Nat, and Steve, at least in the comics, will be with us for a long, long, long time. Beautiful. Bucky in my heart eternally. (laughs) Mal, on your left. The Nuggets! So let's collect six of our favorite insights and observations from this film like so many Infinity Stones. Lightning round style, you go first. Number one, Peggy's husband. While Steve and Peggy's long-awaited union in Avengers Endgame was a soul-stirring bit of romance, it did present one speed bump for viewers. What about the husband Peggy mentioned (laughs) In Winter Soldier. Yeah, forget it. Recall what Steve hears Peggy say in the Smithsonian video. Quote, Steve, Captain Rogers, he fought his way through a Hydra blockade that had pinned our allies down for months. He saved over 1,000 men, including the man who would, who would become my husband, as it turned out. Even after he died, Steve was still changing my life. And then numerous, like, awkward glances away from the camera and and a lot of blinking. Let's not forget (laughs) the body language (laughs) from Peggy in that moment. So much blinking. This is like (laughs) four or five blinks in, like, two seconds. Now, this is not the pod or the moment where we are going to get into all of the various timeline possibilities and ramifications of the endgame plot. Though we will, of course, do that down the road. But here, for our purposes today, we must note this. The screenwriters of this movie, Marcus and McFeely, have said that they believe Steve Rogers was the husband in question all along. In a 2019 interview with The Hollywood Reporter, McFeely said, quote, 
it was always our intention that he was the father of those two children. But again, there are time travel loopholes for that. Marcus then added, <laughs> quote, it does introduce the idea, <laughs> this is so funny, <laughs> that there are two children <laughs> who have somewhat super soldier DNA. <laughs> well, what does Marvel think about this? We have a quote for you. In an interview with Canada.com, McFeely said, quote, the husband that you very purposefully did not see at Peggy's bedside in Winter Soldier, meaning in the photos that we see, is Chris's Steve. We have always thought that he was her husband. The movies you have been watching follow a line where he always goes back. To be fair, the quote continues. Not everyone agrees with us. I don't even know if Marvel agrees with us, but that's what we think. Now, let me just hashtag not canon. This, <laughs> this is so convoluted. We will spend so much time talking about this in the Endgame pod. It, it, so much time. I honestly cannot wait. But again, for our purposes today, thinking of it this way does certainly add more richness to the moment in the hospital scene when Peggy tells Steve, quote, the world has changed. And none of us can go back. (laughs) All we can do is our best. And sometimes the best we can do is start over. Number two, the insight hit list. As Jasper Sitwell, that sack of shit, spills in absolute seconds when Steve, Nat, and Sam grill him on the roof, Zola's algorithm identifies many targets for Hydra, including, quote, you, a TV anchor in Cairo, the Undersecretary of Defense, a high school valedictorian in Iowa City, Bruce Banner, Stephen Strange, anyone who's a threat to Hydra now or in the future. The Stephen Strange mention feels of a piece with the you and Hulk nods, a list of Avengers, superpowered people. But at the time, the MCU's first Doc Strange film was still to come in Phase 3, so this was a hugely energizing tease for fans of the Sorcerer Supreme. Marvel fans have long wondered if the Cairo mention could point to Mark Spector's Moon Knight, a recently announced Disney Plus project starring Oscar Isaac, and whether the Iowa City Smart Kid tease could perhaps be uber-genius Amadeus Cho, but neither association has been confirmed to date in the MCU. And part of the horror of this plotline is that the algorithm targets millions, not just soups. When the Insight Helicarrier activates in the film's climax, we see more than 715,000 targets on the map, including President Ellis from Iron Man 3, and nestled inside a glimpse of Avengers Tower, Anthony Stark. I think Feige will confirm that it is Amadeus Cho at some point in the future. That's my take. That's a prediction. All in on that. Number three. Had to do it, folks. Let's talk about Goose. (laughs) (laughs) I can only be who I am. I'm sorry. When Steve visits Fury to express his dismay over the compartmentalization of missions aboard the Lemurian Star. Fury says, quote, last time I trusted someone, I lost an eye. Now, (laughs) upon the film's release in 2014, the origin of Nick Fury's eye patch remained inside of the MCU a mystery. But on a rewatch, this is now such a fun tease for our pal Goose of Captain Marvel fame. Goose, of course, appears to be an orange tabby cat, but is in actuality a flurkin, capable not only of temporarily ingesting the Tesseract before vomiting it back up. Gotta say, real cat move right there from our flurkin friend, but of blinding fury with an eye scratch incurred 
while Nick held Goose in front of his face to celebrate their shared victory. That was a close call, huh, Goosey, huh? Those bad guys still in there somewhere. And then whoosh, slice. Cats don't like when you do that to them. Now, while Fury says, it's just a scratch. Our guy Talos shakes his head and says, no. Mother <laughs> Flurkins, indeed, protect Goose. Number four, comics character intros galore, folks. Brock Rumlow is terribly injured and burned after his battle with the Falcon at S.H.I.E.L.D. headquarters. I mean, just be happy you survived, my guy. But that's Honestly. not the end of his arc as he returns in Civil War as his comics alter identity Crossbones, a classic Cap foe first introduced in 1989's Captain America 359. Sharon. Carter appears as her comics character in this film, Agent 13, a cap partner, and on again, off again, love interest in the comics, and a character who dates back to 1966's Tales of Suspense number 75. The detail we have to wait for Civil War to clarify in Movie Land is her last name, Carter, which is awkward. Meanwhile, on the printed page, Alexander Pierce isn't the boss, but rather a S.H.I.E.L.D. field agent who works for Fury and was introduced in 1988's Nick Fury versus S.H.I.E.L.D. number three. UFC legend George Saint-Pierre plays Batroc, a.k.a. Batroc the Leaper, the French kickboxer who debuted in the same comic as Sharon Carter and whose purple and gold comic suit looks like the Vikings Week 11 uniforms. Bad costume. That's my take on Batroc the Leaper. <laughs> the ship on which Cap battles Batroc the Lemurian star recalls the Lemurians and Lemuria, the oceanic people, and often seen in the Submariners arcs. And of course, the mid-credits scene teases the impending role of Scarlet Witch, Quicksilver, and Baron Wolfgang von Strucker in Avengers Age of Ultron. Number five. Before we get to Ultron, Cap has a lot to do, and it's all on that to-do list. When Sam tells Steve that he has to listen to Marvin Gaye's 1972 Trouble Man soundtrack, which... Sam will then play in Steve's hospital room near the end of the film, a nice little full circle moment there. He tells him it's, quote, everything you miss jammed into one album. At which point, Steve opens up a notebook and adds it to this catch-up list that he's keeping. The items that we see are, quote, I love Lucy, parentheses, television. Moon landing. What is it? What is moon? Why is that on there? Just all you need to know is they went. So they went funny. to the moon while you were asleep. <laughs> Berlin Wall parentheses up and down. Here's the, I now Steve because of his World War II experience, I think would have been very interested in the Berlin Wall. Sure. Yeah, that whole thing. But again, yeah. like this is not. I think you need separate lists. Let me just say that. Berlin Wall, <laughs> like, whole, do some reading. Also, real moon landing, here. move on. Like, why is Steve Jobs after Berlin, Berlin Wall? Sorry, I just spoiled it. Go ahead. Spoiler, Steve Jobs, Francis Apple. <laughs> Disco. This is my favorite one. Thai food. I mean, is you going to be shocked, Steve? Your mouth is going to experience things that, you've, that you're not Delicious. ready for. Delicious. Yeah. Star Wars slash Trek. Nirvana, parentheses, band, <laughs> as opposed to the actual experience of achieving Nirvana, I suppose. <laughs> Rocky, parentheses, Rocky 2, question mark. And then he adds, trouble man, soundtrack. Now, Star Wars appears to be crossed off, okay? Meaning Steve presumably caught up on the films and hopefully has subsequently caught up on binge mode Star Wars. 
available exclusively on Spotify. But here's a fun fact. The entries that viewers saw varied depending on where they watched the movie. Ah! In the wake of the film's... (laughs) Oh, God. In the wake of the film's release... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is one of those things where you'd see like a little nugget surface here on yeah. one Reddit board, a nugget surface here on one pop culture site. Fans, pop culture websites, people and message boards all across the internet started to observe this phenomenon. While the bottom half of the list from Thai food through to Trouble Man remained consistent across the globe, the top half varied country to country. UK viewers, for example, saw a list that included the Beatles and... We have to note Sherlock, fun Cumberbatch extended universe connection there. I, I just, I, for, first of all, Beatles and no stones and then Beatles and Sherlock. It's like, listen, Sherlock <laughs> is great fun. You can skip that one until later. Let's investigate some of the other stuff first. I have a lot of follow up questions about where he's getting all of the recommendations. Like he wrote down something from Sam who he'd met 30 seconds prior. So, well, that's a great point be- because there's only like, <laughs> What is there, uh, 10 things on here? There's not. It's like, where's all the other stuff? Well, as he said elsewhere, you know, the internet's so helpful. So hopefully he's doing some work outside of what's just in the notebook. Spain's list includes Rafa Nadal. Italy's list includes the 1982 and 2006 World Cups. France's includes Daft Punk. (laughs) (laughs) Our Steve approves. Australia's includes Steve Irwin. Germany's includes Oktoberfest. South Korea's includes old boy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Fascinating to dive into this. Now, at least we know from the Camp Lehigh exchange with Matt that Steve did not have to add war games to any list. Jason, he understood that reference. I saw it. I saw that one. Here's my headcanon for that. He saw it on a date with someone. Mm. Number six. Rapid fire Easter eggs. Stanley appears as the Smithsonian exhibit guard sweating his job security after Steve steals his World War II era cap suit from the display. Bucky later arriving there. It's like, guys, man. Looking good in that baseball cap. Everybody just keep an eye on the cap exhibit because (laughs) what a great spot for superhero spotting that is. Natasha's hearing includes two notable nuggets. First, the you're not going to put any of us in a prison line that teases the Civil War, uh, the raft plot. Second, Stephen Culp's appearance as a committee member, which has convinced Cram that the West Wing and MCU are part of a shared universe. He's all in on this theory. <laughs> He's so excited about it. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, speaking of Nat... They said they wanted to make a political thriller, Jason. I guess. ScarJo confirmed in an interview with Rotten Tomatoes that the arrow neck she wears in the film is a nod to her bond with Hawkeye, which... Touching. How does Hawkeye's wife feel about this? Can I just ask? It's got to be... Early note here. (laughs) Set aside 45 minutes to discuss that once Hawkeye's family is introduced into the MCU. (laughs) Absolutely. Linda Cardellini has a few notes for Hawkeye about <laughs> the fact that his longtime partner oh, in the in the intelligence game wears a necklace pendant that represents him. Yeah, I have some issues. Anyway, yeah, that's for later. Speaking of bonds, the record Fury plays when hiding in Steve's apartment is the same song that Steve and Peggy will dance to in Endgame. It's been a long, long time. Meanwhile. 
Fury tells Steve that Tony, quote, had a few suggestions once he got an up-close look at our old turbines, a clear reference to Tony getting stuck in the helicarrier blades in the Avengers. From Turbine's shields, Bucky lifting Steve's shield here is a cross-film Easter egg as he hoisted the vibranium aboard Zola's train in Captain America. The first Avenger before his fall, both moments nod to Bucky's comic run as Captain America. Speaking of Bucky's comic connections, the moment when his metal arm meets Steve's shield in this film is a direct nod to the iconic shield punch image from the Winter Soldier comics run. And the author of that arc, Ed Brubaker, actually makes a cameo in this film as one of the folks brainwashing Bucky. We also get a cup at which Mal has watched uh, 57 million times Listen. because of the way. <laughs> it's a well, it's a just a well, well filmed, well crafted, it well is. lit. Well acted sequence. His you know? abs are absolutely listening in that scene. Uh, we also get a couple of non Marvel pop culture connections. Community alums, Danny Pudi and DC Pearson, appear nodding to the Russo brothers' ties to the show, while the quote, Path of the Righteous Man Ezekiel 2517, quote on Fury's fake tombstone, is a wink to his legendary pulp fiction character, Jules, who quotes that passage in the film. We could do an entire pod at some point about the. Pulp Fiction, MCU connections. Oh my God. So many. There are so many of them. Shouts to Happy's hair in Iron Man 3. Now and always. Jason. Yes. I'm not going to fight you. You're my friend. You're my mission. You're my mission. Well then, let's argue. Because this season, we're debating the winner of every episode of Binge Mode Marvel. Whosoever holds this hammer. If they be worthy, shall possess the power of binge. Today's debate. Steve Rogers, Captain America, ever heard of him? Versus a duo. Falcon. Hello. And Black Widow. A very quick refresher on the rules before we begin. We will each have 60 seconds for our opening statements. Coin flip will determine the order, and then we'll each have 30 seconds for a rebuttal. Then the matter goes to the binge heads, who will vote on our social channels to decide. Sounds great. I love it. You ready to flip the coin? Flip it. Flip it. Heads. You're flipping it. Oh, I thought Steve was going to flip it. All right. He probably should, actually. I know. that. Like, yeah, flip it. Heads. Yeah. You want me to flip it? I'll flip it. Yeah. Yeah. Let's take it out of Jason's hands. <laughs> heads. It is heads. Unbelievable. <laughs> Unbelievable. Unbelievable. All right, I'm ready. Uh, Steve, are you going to keep the clock then? I'm going to count three, two, one, go. Okay? Three, two, one, go. The winner is Captain Stephen Rogers, the Captain of America. Why? Well, let's count the ways. First of all, engaged in some of the most iconic action scenes in all of the MCU, the elevator fight, the fight on the highway, just two absolute barn burners that are must-watch moments in the MCU. He got his best friend Bucky back. Got him back from the dead. Brought him back. And he had sex, folks. <laughs> you know he did. I know uh, he did. 
everybody knows that he did. And Natasha, she knows it too. That's a winning combination, folks. And he brought down shield that was a front for a Nazi conspiracy. Thank you. I yield my time. Boy, once again, didn't really need your full clock, but so it goes. I yield my time. So it goes. I yield my time. (laughs) Interesting case. Steve, will you be timing me as well? I'll also be timing myself, but... (laughs) (laughs) You know, helps me. Helps me stay on track, but... You guys are both welcome to time me too. Okay. Okay. Ready? Set. Go. You're all excited for the Falcon and the Winter Soldier Disney Plus TV show. Let me offer you a little teaser. The Falcon and the Black Widow. Whosoever holds this hammer show. So much of this film hinges on personal growth and progress and the strides that Steve Rogers makes in this movie hinge in large part on how his two new pals, his two Winter Soldier sidekicks, help him work through his trust issues and find a new sense of purpose. Mm -hmm. Sam and Natasha don't just prop him up spiritually, though. They're with him in the thick of battle, challenging Sitwell on the roof, battling Bucky in the street, executing the attack on the Project Insight helicarriers. Sam, he's brave, he's bold, he's effortless in the air, and indispensable resource for Steve as a fellow soldier as he works through adjusting to life back home. Handy with a pop culture reference. Nat, our avatar, asking Steve all the questions we wanted to. Also navigating through her own complex journey with S.H.I.E.L.D. and her chemistry with Steve is absolutely electric. They could each win on their own together. Their case is unimpeachable. They're cool. They're badass. They're what Steve needs. I'd love to hear your rebuttal, sir. Here it is. Your 30-second rebuttal <clears throat> on two beloved characters who you adore. Go Ready? Ahead. Three, mm-hmm. two, one, go. How can Sam win when he says, and I quote, I do what he does, only slower. He followed Steve's <laughs> lead there. Steve led him to victory. Nat, very similarly. Although, if you had only went with her, I would have then been worried because she's the only one who does not go on the run, faces the music, faces the consequences, and faces down Congress. Had you gone with only Nat, I'd be worried, but I'm not. P.S. They boned in Sam's bedroom. I yield my time! Once again, didn't need your full time. I, I, I'm sticking with like a bathroom-bedroom combo there, but I think we agree on that point at least. Change the sheets! <laughs> You think okay. Sam afterwards was like, Steve, can I just ask you just Little soldier laundry. to soldier? Do I need to do laundry or no? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you had mentioned that back in your day, they boiled all the food. Do I need to boil those sheets? <laughs> I need to boil those? Did we get a shot of the super soldier serum there? Huh? <laughs> did we? Did we? I think we did. Okay. Rebuttal time. I love it. Listen, for a character I love, Steve Rogers, I love. What's not love? We love all of these characters. There it is, folks. We love them all. One, two. (laughs) I'm like Falcon, you know? I do everything you do, but slower. (laughs) Three, go. Listen, I have nothing but love 
for Steve Rogers. And I have to say the new uni looks great. However, Steve, if left to his own devices in this film, would have spent the entire time writing down moon landing. He may as well be Prince Philip from season three of The Crown. Also, a little too much time whining about how Fury won't tell him anything. You don't see Nat doing that. Also, he had a shield agent living next door to him, spying on him, babysitting him. He had no idea. His best friend, alive for decades, murdering people. He had no idea. And your winner had to ask my winner if he was bad at kissing. Tough look for your guy. That is shameful, slanderous work. Stating the facts. Rubin. But it, <laughs> Stating the facts. But delightful nonetheless. Steve Rogers, part of why we love him is because he's not actually perfect, you know? Once again, my opponent has uh, taken the side of lying super spies who have been uh, taught to murder. And? <laughs> Sarah. Okay, bitch heads, sir. You've made it. We've made our cases and now Mjolnir, or as Darzik would say, meow meow, is in your hands. Head to at binge underscore mode on Twitter and Instagram and the binge mode group on Facebook to cast your vote on whether Steven Rogers or Sam Wilson and Natasha Romanoff are the worthy winner of Captain America, Winter Soldier. Bum, bum. Well, friends public displays of podcasting make people very uncomfortable. So we're going to wrap for the day. Thanks as always to Steve Allman, Isaac Lee, and Zach Cram, our indispensable producers and researcher. Remember, if you're looking for past seasons of Binge Mode, whether Game of Thrones, Harry Potter, Star Wars, or Weekly, they're all available for you to listen to in full for free exclusively on Spotify. Boot them up if you're driving to Camp Lehigh. Boot up. We hope you had as much... Fun as we did today. That <laughs> you're as excited as we are to hop back into the Quinjet, explore the rest of the story, and that you will join us again next time for our discussion of Guardians of the Galaxy. Oh! That's going to be a really fun one. I can't wait for that one. Until then, remember, we're with you to the end of the line. You do anything, anything fun this room? No, I just sat home and watched football. Yeah, my fantasy team is absolute fucking garbage. Oh, hold on. They almost have what they want. Absolute what? control. They shot Nick Fury. Oh my God. And it won't end there. What? If you launch those helicarriers today, Hydra will be able to kill Dude. anyone that stands in their this, way. Should we even be eating this food? Are you telling me Hydra? Unless we stop Hydra. Might have made this? Honestly, it kind of makes sense. With the, the soup, it kind of makes sense that Hydra would make it. That is fucking swill. <laughs>